Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When I was in New York, when I was I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were going back in my head. There was evidence of human Welcome back to Conspiranormal. We are back. We have not been shut down by the NSA, the FBI, or the CIA yet. Oh, thank God. <laughs> As we had uh, a little problem like the last time that we met. Uh, that was a very interesting night, guys. Uh, as you probably know, if you haven't heard the last two shows, we had Scott Bennett on. the. Uh, well, actually it was the last show, but we actually recorded it before the one with Peter Robbins. And we were in here doing the show. Uh, Scott had had said he had had some Skype hacking problems the week before, so we weren't able to get him on. And then all of a sudden... We're talking to Scott and Rob. You can kind of tell what 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 happened to your system. Oh, it was it was just bizarre, man. Like the internet shut off for about three seconds, and then when it kicked back on, everything glitched out. We tried restarting the computer, and it booted up like it was the first time I had ever been on. I was asking me what my language preferences were, and mm-hmm. like, I'd had the computer for two years, and I've never had an issue like this. It was just 
is nuts. Like the like the program that we use to record yeah, the show. Went, went back to default settings. I had yeah. to go in and re reprogram everything, reset everything up and but still you had had it recorded, you know, so Well and, and it was it was weird because it what it what it basically did, it, it allowed us to keep recording from both ends, but we couldn't hear each other. So we ended up with you know, having to do just an outro with him not being able to hear us and explaining, yeah. like trying to go through, you know, everything really fast. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had to, then we, we, to get Peter Robbins on, we couldn't get the, you couldn't get the computer to come back up. You had to figure out what was going on. And so we had to move all the, we had to move like this, the mic stands and everything back to my house. Thankfully, we're only like two minutes apart from each other here. So. Yeah. Thankfully you still have all that set up yeah, for backup. Uh, so then we we got Peter Robbins on. Uh, Luke is fashionably late as always. <laughs> so really, uh, you know, I told him to be here at six o'clock, but I really should have said like five. Then he would have been here <laughs> by six. So, but we have in studio, and we do have a special guest coming on here in a little bit. But uh, we have a more than special guest, which is Mr. Joe Damari. Joe has been with us since the very beginning, and. He now, we've talked a little bit about it before last year, but he now has some new technology and actually a new phone app that uh, that we want to talk about tonight. So, Joe, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm just here to help out, help the conspiracy world. The conspiracy um, and the paranormal world, yeah, right? Yeah, help everybody wake up. Yeah. So, tell us about this new app that you have developed and that is available. Tell us like what it does, uh, what it's called, and we'll go from there. We're calling it um, Light and Motion Tracker. It there's a there's a light version which is free on the iPhone App Store, and then a Pro version. The only difference is the light version. We put a timer on it just to annoy people so that they'll buy the Pro version. But you can do everything with the light version as a Pro, but what do you mean, like a timer? Like um, we put a sixty-second timer on it. Once it once it analyzes your video and shows you all the motion and light that's going on, you got about sixty seconds to save what you see. If you don't save it, it restarts the app, and it's just annoying because you have to redo your video again. And it's probably takes around five to twelve minutes to do a video. So um, if you don't mind. You know, just if you have a bad video and it restarts, just start over again. You know, it's trying to decode the light that's in front. So it take the mathematical calculations take a while. We're doing one in the studio right now. So what are we? So what are we looking at? Like, what what, what are people going to see when they when they use this app? Kind of like explain the process. Okay, of what we're trying to to look at here. Yeah, it's really boring, okay, at first, but what it ends up showing you is a whole new world of of motion that's happening right in front of us. And it's not dust because this is fast. The video we're decoding right now is only a half a second long, and dust doesn't travel from left to right and make faces in a half a second. Okay. Um, this stuff is it follows the light, so it's pretty interesting. Um the app is boring. There's a big tutorial, and I recommend everybody read it and learn how to use it. After that, just take a five-second video of of a mid-shadow range area. If it's too bright, um, 
it just ends up being white because it's seeing all that light movement. So you kind of have to play around a little bit with the app and do multiple videos to, to get the lighting right. You also want to ask for things like ask for your grandma to show up, you know, or Winston Churchill, <laughs> <laughs> the, the different, different people you ask for. And if they actually show up, then that proves that we're actually getting real ghosts. But, um, none of it's, fictitious we didn't we didn't program every occurrence inside the app it's just doing mathematical calculations on the matrixing of the brightness of the pixels in that certain area it sounds weird so but. basically we're, we're we're taking a video we're running it through like this kind of like this matrix that's on this slide emotion app and what we're 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 gonna see like things show up like uh, figures people now, let me let me ask you a question. Like one of the one of the and yeah, I know you've gotten this before. One of the biggest questions is like, how do we know what we're seeing isn't something like pareidolia or 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 something like that? Um, it, it's dependent upon the user. If you take a video of of a tree in the background of all the leaves, it's probably going to be pareidolia and a matrixing because you've got a a background that is supplying all those shadows. But if you have a flat one color background and then you start seeing faces and, and hands and body parts, that's when you know you got something because there's no matrixing involved. Yeah. You've got a one color background, you know, and that's where you can see the ghost really good. And also it's like really quick too. So like we're seeing something that's, that's, that's probably like one frame is, what, like a quarter of a second, something like that? Yeah, glad you brought that up. That, that's what's interesting about this is once you see a face in a person, the the next frame later, they're gone. Yeah. Because I don't know why. Uh, our theory is they're moving at light speed so or vibrating at light speed. And just think about it. If you existed at light speed and you came to Earth with with and watch the humans, they would be slow like statues and turtles. You would get bored standing there. So you would make yourself known, possibly, then leave. Or, or, or you just have a lot of free time on your hands, and you could be the lady in white walking down, down the stairs, I guess. But okay. the, it's, it's, it's a difference of speed, I think. And it's interesting that they're gone one frame later. Well, another th thing that I've, I've always kind of heard before is that that sort of manifestation requires a lot of energy too. And that's, I mean, I've heard that theory thrown out there a lot with, um, in regards to other, um, visual type paranormal experiences. Yeah. We're, we're thinking the same, um, definitely probably some consumption of energy involved, but we don't, we don't know how to measure it. Okay. So what we did was right before the show, uh, me and Rob, we went over here by this little air conditioning unit that we have here, and Rob's got that covered up with uh, like a black surface. So I'm kind of like describing what that is. And Rob and I both put our hands into the frame, and I asked for Winston Churchill. And Rob, you asked for? I asked for my grandma who recently okay. passed. Okay. And if she shows, I'm, I might poop myself a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if Winston Churchill shows up, I'll probably, you know. <laughs> I'll probably poop my pants as well. So what are we, what, we're looking at a screen here inside. No, this is like really good radio guys. So we're looking at a screen here that Joe's got set up in our little studio 
And we're looking at a picture right now of my hand, my arm, and, and Rob's arm flanking the um, air conditioning unit. So w- b- the black background. So what are we probably going to see here? Have you processed it? It's processing right now. It's at 66%. Um, this one video, I did the maximum number of frames um, right now. It taxes the iPhone's memory, so it's using the entire memory of the iPhone. Yeah. But um, what you're going to see here possibly is the ghost you asked for. If not, you may see some random other thing going on. But they're like superheroes. They don't have to listen to us. They're invisible, and they move at light speed. You know. So I've been getting some strange things, but I have got a few things that I have asked for. So... Just give it a few more minutes. So, so while we're waiting, tell me about uh, kind of like the w- the process of how you started this, like where you, where you got this idea to do this and what you were working with before and why that was kind of a little more unwieldy than what this is, how this is more s- simple. Okay, yeah. I made this simple for everybody. We were first working with um, Doogie and the Tennessee Wraith Chasers on Ghost Asylum. Right. Doogie's like, Joe, you know that the mist that shows up when it's hot out, when you're, you're, you look outside down the street and you see all the gas rising up? Yeah, like said, the heat waves. Yeah, the yeah. heat waves. He said, Joe, we need to put heat waves up somehow and see if anything passes through them and changes the pattern. And, and ever since then, we were thinking of different things like shrillian and different stuff and they're all very cumbersome so so doogie doogie i give a lot of credit to doogie he he came he said joe you got to check out this mit software that can see the blood flow in your face from a camera from far away it can see the blood moving i'm like what what are you talking about so i i I blew it off a little bit, but I got bored one day, so I checked it out. Then ever since then, I've been experimenting with with the math behind it. And it's it amplifies very small changes of color. Yeah. Um, like most filters like Instagram, they just go with the major stuff. But the MIT stuff will amplify the smallest changes. It does the largest changes too, which just turn out black or white. But the smallest changes are what get what we're seeing um, this invisible world. You're, it's like putting um, cellophane over something. You can't really see the cellophane unless you get really close. Then you notice that it's there. So, so this technology, um, it used to take a computer um, that we're using the MIT software, it would take about 30 minutes to do one second of video. So we, we said we got to get it on the iPhone somehow and make it available to everybody. So we, we cut a few corners, but it actually ends up turning out better than the MIT software, I think, because it's quicker. Um, you're only able to analyze one, one to five seconds at a time, but that's all you really need for a ghost. You know, you want to see them and that's all they last for, which apparently is funny, but the ghosts are quick too. So if I I say we made our software quick, but the ghosts are just as quick. So it's kind of like a high speed, having a high speed camera because you can slow down each frame and just look at the different pattern changes and it's mind boggling. Really. So, so where you were before when you had the MIT software, like I know, cause you know, I've been kind of with you through this whole process 
is like you, you had when you had to process it, it took like a massive amount of space on your computer. Yeah, each video would take about six gigabytes of space, and that would be just for 15 seconds. Six Jeez. gigabytes. So um, to put that on your iPhone, you wouldn't have any space left. Most iPhones come with 64 gigs, but half of it's filled with apps. And just one video you would be done with. So ours, it is compressing, which we're trying to get away from. If something's uncompressed, you're going to see even more. But our version actually does work with the compressed stuff coming from the iPhone. So it's really interesting. Okay. So it looks like it's ready. Am I, am I correct? Yeah. So well, I guess we'll, we'll we'll look and see with this, like, this be like a video podcast right now, but it's not. <laughs> okay. So we're looking at the screen. Okay, I'm going to go to frame zero. Okay. You have to take it off of play and just hit pause and go through it one frame at a time. And right now, Adam, I see some old guy right there above your hand. All right. So I'm looking at my hand. I see the wall. I see a lot of like different shapes and stuff. But be be honest with you, what I'm seeing right now over my hand is I'm in seeing like kind of like a face, but it's not very Winston Churchill like. Well, it looks, it looks like some kind of weird ass alien. To I don't me. know what Winston Churchill looks like. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like it's bald. Churchill is bald, so I, I definitely see a face okay. there. Also, I put the pulsing technology into it, so it's going from the lightest frame to the darkest. Yeah, and you can see the the stuff better. Yeah, now it looks like some scary vision of hell. There's faces everywhere. Yeah, I yeah. know. <laughs> there's a there's a, a creature coming off the top of his head too, but he looks like a pirate to me. But whoa, look, really? It looks like a pirate. He does. Okay. Well, that's interesting. We're oh, going to yeah, talk. We're going to talk yeah. about pirates tonight. Yeah. On look at that background, though, guys. That's what I'm talking about. Right. You don't see him. Well, and the thing that all. the thing that caught me was from frame to frame how much motion and change there is on a solid black background. Yeah, that that's the moving light we're talking about, and it's amazing. Okay. Okay, that's frame one above Adam's hand. All right. Okay. And What's the utility of the pulsing thing? It's actually to see it better. Okay. If you guys want me to stop it from pulsing, let me know. See that the pirate's not there anymore. Yeah. See now I don't see any faces in this. Yeah, frame, I don't see frame five. Right. There's something else there though, like with a bandana. But sometimes it's really cool. You'll see them turn their heads, and I'm okay. Like what? So let's go, I guess, over to Rob, over Rob's, uh, Hold on. I Rob's hand. No dead air. I got to look at Winston Churchill real quick. <laughs> okay. Oh, it looks weird. Yeah, see how weird you guys look? And it doesn't yeah. destroy, <laughs> it's not destroying the background. We look weird anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason. Well, I know about Rob. Right he looks there. he looks like Jesus. Yeah, that's right there. Holding some flowers or something. That's grandma. 
Okay, this is phase one. It looks just like that back there. Phase right, what two, is phase one doing? Okay, phase one is the original video. When you move okay. to phase two, it's the in-between calculations, and phase three is the, the max calculations. Right. And this is, this is crazy. Yeah, it's, it's too bad everybody can't at home can't see this. But. <laughs> yeah, you guys got to explain it. Do you have a YouTube video or something you could put you could put up? Um, no, not really. I just want people to do their own videos. You know, yeah. like take your own videos and see what starts showing up in them. So let's look at what's on Rob around Rob's <laughs> hand. And Rob, what what that's your hand there? To me, that is what like do you some see? Old lady's face or some guy's face? It's a long, like stretched out face with sunglasses or something. Yeah, I see it. I see, I see, like a kind of like long, stretched out face. Like a dog. What do you think, Rob? Well, I haven't seen Grandma yet. That's just frame one. That's frame sixteen. And it's weird, but it's usually in the first few frames you guys take. So it's like they're listening. They're not like let's show up at the same time. So did um. Yeah, it's like. I it doesn't necessarily <laughs> have to be what we asked for. Yeah, it could just knows. be. It could just be something that's something that's random. Well, well, our tech. I don't think it's random though, guys. I think it's random to us because we're not investigating every single possibility. Mm -hmm. But to them, it makes some kind of sense. So when you see a picture of uh, like a pirate, that has something to do with your show, I guess. Yeah, that's that is kind of weird because we're going to talk about pirate. We're talking about pirates tonight, like I said. Like the old guy with a beard. No, I see over here. Yeah, old guy with a funny beard and nose. Oh yeah, person. yeah, I see that. It looks way better on this though. Now, how how fast are we going here? Actually, what's what's the speed of this? Because the video itself, you took what five seconds. Yeah, this is only one the first second of the video. So okay. the other five seconds, um, people need to re-edit, go back in and look at the last one second, like take the clip out and save it as a new one. Well, and it's crazy because there's, there's been a few areas where from frame to frame I've seen, like, obviously if it's just a face in one frame, it would be one thing, but then, like, it kind of morphs morphs and yeah. then vanishes and then morphs and then vanishes and and it's for, for a solid black background and like that's just kind of bizarre it's kind of weird it's like it's it's a, it, at the very least joe it's like it's almost like you could be like doing some like kind of like inadvertent art here you know yeah, we got like like artistic. a jackson pollock kind of thing going on very artistic let, let me let me ask you man what what do you what do you hope to accomplish with this like with this technology with this with, with this app I, I really want I, I really want the scientists to to understand that they need to start teaching this in school. There's something yeah. here. I want them to pay attention to the light that's right in front of us. They're using fiber optics, you know, to send the internet around, right? So why can't it just exist in free space? And I think it is. Okay. So are we do you think we're dealing with ghosts? Do you think we're dealing with the other side here? Yeah, at, or could we dealing with something completely random or like a parallel universe? I mean, the, the, the possibilities could be pretty endless on this. Yeah, um, I'm really thinking that 
that it's all the same side because it's just our limited vision. Yeah. We call it the other side because we can't see it or understand it. But but I'm getting pictures, and if you guys download the app, you'll get pictures too of things that are in your living room. So to me, it's the same side. It's just we can't see them with our normal eyes. It's kind of like right. kind of like a, a microscope. You can't see the bacteria on your hands, right? But when you turn it on, you start seeing all these living creatures right on your hand. Well, let me let me let me ask you. Like, that's another thing too. Like you've you've had small um, things that have appeared, like where you've you've held out your hand. Like you were demonstrating to me earlier, like your little your your youngest daughter asked to see a bird that her uh, that the cat killed or something, and you said that she saw the that you could see a bird in that picture. And not only did you see a bird, but you said you saw a branch as well. Yeah. Like we're getting technology. It's not always just a spirit. We're seeing them holding clubs and chains and yeah. like tree branches and things. So they're somehow right in front of us is a, a, a less material world, but it, to them, it's probably their world. And it's just, and the spirits seem to be smaller than we expected. Like, like some of the human spirits, they seem to be small little miniature people. But we're thinking maybe that's to conserve energy. Like they don't need a big body anymore. So why not be a little person? Then they could show up better maybe on camera. Maybe they're just doing it for our enjoyment that we can see them and be less scared of them. If they're, you know, if, if that creature's only uh, one foot tall, you're not going to be as scared of it. If it was the size of your house and I actually have gotten a, a image of a creature that was two stories tall. I posted what? it. On, yeah. I posted it on Instagram. This thing is about two stories tall what, and it has like a, a, like a, like the side of your house or something. The side of a hospital actually. Right. People uh -huh. are dying all the time. Why not? So, so, so like a Nephilim. No, it was like a, it was a human looking person, but a giant probably, yeah. but it could have been, it could have been someone we know, but maybe they're from a different world that used to be that tall. We don't, we're really not sure, but that's why I want scientists to investigate this. This is really interesting. Do you have other examples on Instagram? And if so, where, how would people find that so they can? Yeah. Um, type in, um, keyword hidden Intel. That's H-I-D-D-E-N-I-N-T-E-L-L. -L. And um, you'll get, if you'll know you're at the right spot if you see like um, ghost pictures, but that's, and it'll have a, a link to our app on there. So where is the app available? Where can people get it? And like the, the difference between like the free version, like how the, like the price of it? Um, the app right now, we're trying to make it f available for, um, Android, but right now it's only available for iPhone. Um, it's on the iPhone app store it's called, um, light and motion tracker pro right. or light and motion tracker light version. And the pro version is only $7 and 99 cents. Um, to us, it helps us fund more research. So if you guys do end up buying the pro version, thank you. And if you just test out the other version and give us feedback, we're, we're very thankful too. We're, we're showing really amazing results and I just want everybody to experience what we're experiencing. Okay. 
This has been our infomercial moment on uh, Conspiracy yeah. Normal. Uh, Rob, real quick, um, you know, I've been, uh, Joe's like one of my good friends. I've known him for a long time. And uh, I've kind of been th- with him through this process, like I said before. You're just now being exposed to this. What are your thoughts on it? Um, my thoughts are I, I need to play around with the app a lot more tomorrow. It's, okay. It's, I, I love all the, um, just the motion that I'm seeing on like a blank black background. Yeah. Like I didn't know what I was doing with the app the other day. I was, I tried to play around with it a little bit and stuff, right. but I, I didn't really get it. And, and now that I'm seeing some kind of cool results, I wish I had played around with it more. Yeah. Like where's all that stuff coming from? It makes me think I was, another thing I was wondering real quick is, um, uh, not to compare it too much, but like to, with EVPs and stuff, I always wonder if a lot of the stuff is, um, the manipulation of noise that's already there mm-hmm. or if you know if say this would work with um analog equipment or if it works better because of it's a digital type of medium yeah if you watch ted talks mit just did a release on this technology used with sound and it's mind-boggling really? so yeah that's our next step is actually we're sh- almost sure of it that they're talking in light patterns and it's going to be mind-blowing in the next 10 years nice Okay. Well, I will have on the show notes, I will have a link to, uh, if you want to send me a link, Joe, where we can get people can download the app or just a link to like also maybe your Instagram as well. People can see the different pictures that you've taken with it. But uh, let's take a break here, guys. Uh, Joe, thank you for being here. You're going to sit with the, with, through with, with the, uh, with the guest. Yeah. But uh, guys, we will be right back with Scott Walter. We're going to talk about the Knights Templar. We're going to talk about Pirate Treasure, also known as Booty, Booty. like the Beastie Boys like to say. (laughs) And we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right, guys, we're back on Conspiranormal. And tonight we have a guest that we are extremely happy to have on. And that is the, I will say, the star of the show America Unearthed from the History Channel. And also more recently, in the last month or so, uh, another show called Pirate Treasure of the Knights Templar. And that is Mr. Scott Walter. Scott, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. We're happy to have you. Thanks for having me, Adam. And um, looking forward to having a fun visit here. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're real excited to have you on the show. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, an, an actual celebrity, man. Right, right on. <laughs> Look, it's, I'm not a celebrity. That's just a bunch of BS. They uh, <laughs> they can turn anybody on TV into somebody. And believe yeah. me, there's no magic going on here in Minnesota here. <laughs> well, we actually have someone in the studio that's actually worked on a television show, so they can they, they can also vouch for that. So. Yeah, they know that everybody working on the TV show is is probably crazier than most people. But uh, they're, they're fun to work with creative, talented people, but they sure know how to have fun, too. Right, right. We are not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're doing our like Wayne's World moment right now. You know, yeah, like when, they, okay. when, they, when, they, when they saw Aerosmith on Saturday Night Live. You know? Yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, none of that here tonight, guys. I appreciate it, but not so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk about a little, go into like your background. And there may, there's people out there, I'm sure, that don't know who you are, uh, that don't know what a forensic geologist is and what a forensic geologist does. So I kind of want to go over your background a little bit on that. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, to be quite honest with you, there aren't very many people that do, do what we do. And 
quite frankly, even fewer that do it very well. And it's 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 because I've been working in the professional world um, for uh, oh god, thirty plus years, thirty wow. almost thirty five years now. And basically, what we do is autopsies on concrete and rock, and and mostly what we get involved in are problems mostly with concrete. You know, the the top scales off, it has low strength, it's been fire damage, it cracks. It, there's a whole myriad of, of problems that we run into. And so what we do is we get samples from the projects, representative samples. We run our tests on them. And one of the things that I always tell people is, <laughs> and I do say this, I'll say, look, the, the concrete didn't crack or have low strength or peel off just to piss you off. I mean, it is pissing you off, but it's not, it's not a personal thing. It's doing it for a reason. Okay. And if we get good representative samples and we do our job correctly, we'll figure out what caused the problem. There's always a reason. And so, you know, really that's what's, you know, the whole process of investigation is, is you take the emotion out of it, you run your tests. And in many ways, it's a lot like a doctor, you know, you go in, you're not feeling well, something's wrong. So he'll take your temperature, your blood pressure, a a blood sample. He'll run through a series of tests. And basically what they do is it's really a process of elimination. It's not this, it's not that, it's not this. And eventually they get down to the only thing that's left, and that's the malady that you have or the cause of the defect in the concrete. And it works every time. And so then we write a report, we submit it to them, and then that's when the fun starts. And it either becomes uh, contentious and it goes legal, or in, in most cases, people, they just say, okay, well, that makes sense. This is what happened. And oh, by the way, they did add too much water or whatever the, the situation is. It's funny how people's memories suddenly come back when we tell them the evidence says this is what happened. And they may have denied it at the outset, but eventually they they realize that there's no no way to get around it. This is what happens. So, um, so it's you, great. So are you looking at logical. Like, are you looking at like when like a, a like if a building falls or a structure collapses, right. and you're looking a at a lot of it well, is what catastrophic happened? failures. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's some of the cases that you've been that, that you've investigated uh, as far as like some of the like, just where something like random would happen like that. Well, we, as a matter of fact, yesterday we got called by uh, one of the uh, forensic investigators that we actually worked on the Pentagon project with. I mean, the Pentagon after 9-11 was one that we worked on, all the fire damage, structural concrete. And that forensic engineer, um, Alan Kilsheimer, is working on a uh, a failure that occurred on a bridge in California just, just like a few days ago. Yeah. And so we're going to be looking at the concrete there and trying to figure out what, you know, what happened. So, and I can't even tell you anything. I can't tell you anyway, but I mean, I can't, I don't know if it was a a concrete problem or something else, but we will look at the concrete portion of that to see if it did play a role or if, if it didn't. So, but, but we've looked at, like I said, the Pentagon, we looked at the 35W bridge. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Well, actually, we didn't do much as far as the actual uh, catastrophic failure that happened. We worked on the new bridge uh, and worked on that mixed design because the 35W bridge was basically a steel structure and it was a gusset plate problem. All they had on that bridge was a, was a concrete deck. It was just a dead load slab, so it didn't really have anything to do with the failure other than provide weight, <laughs> you know, to, to help with the collapse. But 
Um, but we did help them uh, come up with uh, a really fancy mix design for the new concrete that went in the uh, in the new bridge. And they they didn't get it right at first. We tested the the mix that they came up with, and they had a couple tweaks that didn't work out quite right. And uh, we helped them get that straightened out. How how did that bridge collapse? Because I mean, it's like like that's an interstate highway bridge, right? And I go, I go over that bridge. Uh, I went over that bridge twice last night. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, every, everybody in town uses that bridge. Right, right. The river runs right through town, and and uh, you, you know, this is, everybody uses that bridge. But it was uh, it was a gusset plate, uh, plate problem that actually caused the failure. But when you say it's a problem, it's 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 more complicated than that because at the time that built, bridge was built back in the 1960s, it was designed to carry a certain amount of traffic, a certain amount of load, and and, and only be uh, rated for a certain number of years. And it exceeded the loads, it exceeded the capacity, and it, it certainly exceeded its uh, designed life cycle. So, um, And it really was a um, perfect storm of a whole bunch of things that all came together to cause that collapse. So, um, but really it was, it was a, a warning that we have to, you know, take a look at all the bridges in this country and make sure that we don't have another situation like that come up. But the reality of this country is our infrastructure is well past its, right. ex, you know, its uh, predicted life. Uh, it's designed life cycle, and we have a hell of a huge job that we need to do to uh, to fix it and get um, get these bridges replaced and repaired and and up to current design. So, how does someone that is does the forensic geology is working primarily with with concrete and with uh, you know, kind of like common everyday things that happen, like collapses yeah. or construction these kind of world, things. the world of construction. And, right. Yeah. How, how does someone get involved with like this? Uh, combine that with like an interest there, and what started your interest with like the Knights Templar specifically? <laughs> well, I is that your thing? <laughs> I didn't have. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden now I'm considered, you know, uh, a Knights Templar expert, and I guess in a way I am, but. Um, it was funny when they, when they, you know, introduced me to the pirate show this year, they called me a, a historian and I had people going, I didn't know you were a historian. And I said, I didn't know I was either, but, <laughs> yeah. but I, I guess in a way, you know, and then I, I, you know, I, and I had some people that were criticizing me for that. I said, look, first of all, I'm not the one that labeled myself that, that, you know, the network did that, but you know, let, let me push back a little bit and say, what is a historian? Okay, a, a historian is somebody who uh, reads a lot about a uh, particular piece of history. Uh, if they're fortunate enough, they go and visit these places and immerse themselves in the area to see it firsthand. And, uh, you know, they become an expert about it. And, and, and I've certainly done that. And I would argue that Relative to to many other historians, I've done a lot more field work and on site work than just about anybody, and I'm I'm very fortunate because I've had the opportunity to go to these places and uh, and see them and study them and and learn about who made them and you know what happened over the uh, the centuries, and so I guess that's what a historian does. I don't know. 
So, what got your interest into the Knights Templar? Uh, oh, was that just something that you just that you picked up on, like maybe? Uh, no, 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 no. It, it it actually came from a project that came into the lab, okay. Our uh, our forensic lab, and it was the Kensington Runestone that was. So it wasn't the our... it wasn't the Da Vinci Code or Holy Blood, Holy Grail or something like no, that. No, 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 no. I didn't. Gotcha. To be honest with you, I didn't. I didn't know anything about that. I mean, I certainly was paying attention. You know, I read newspapers and I knew that this was a big story. But, you know, to, to be honest with you, before I started getting into this research, I, I had no, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a person that, I'm not a person of faith. I, I've never attended church and I, I, you know, I just, it was never something that was on my radar. So the whole um, discussion about this guy, Jesus, being married and having children, to me, was like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> That's what okay. people do, you know. I mean, it's just, to me, it was just no big deal at all. But it started with the runestone, and I was asked to do a forensic study. And really what they wanted us to try to figure out was um, the age of the inscription. I mean, we know the rock was old. I mean, that was obvious. And it, and it is a Minnesota rock. That was something we were able to determine. But the whole idea was how old is the inscription? And and what I did was performed a weathering study where I compared the, the weathering of key minerals in the runestone with tombstones. And tombstones are great because they have the dates right on there. And so I sure. can just go back in time and see how long it, t- it took for certain minerals to weather away. And, uh, and it worked actually better than I could have dreamed. And, you know, the nice thing too is, is to be honest with you, I completely made this work up. It was, uh, it was a, um, uh, a test procedure that nobody had ever done before, but, uh, sometimes, you know, we have to kind of do it on the fly. So, uh, we did, and it worked out really beyond our uh, our expectations as far as what we thought we would achieve. And I, I came to a conclusion that it was old. Uh, I said it was older than 200 years from the date it was pulled out of the ground because it hasn't been in a weathering environment since it was pulled out of the ground. And uh, I said it was genuine. And after that, um, some people were, like, elated and excited, and others were, well, it's a fake, don't you know? <laughs> Yeah. It was like it just bounced off their foreheads, and and I I I, I didn't know that there was a, a you know a sacred paradigm of history. Certain things uh, didn't happen, and it doesn't matter what the evidence says. This this is it, and so uh, that was a real eye opener for me. And uh, you know, and then people started to criticize me and attack me, and I uh, I didn't take too well to that, and so I decided I'm going to know this better than anyone, and that's really what started the journey. And I followed the evidence, and uh, it took me to Scandinavia, five trips to Sweden over a three-and-a-half-year period, and all of the the runes, the dialect, the grammar, the dating, all these things that are on the inscription that people said never existed, um, I knew that they had to exist because the geology told me so. And logic demands, if it's real, that everything in that inscription has to exist somewhere. But if you... If you're operating on the premise that it's a hoax, then nobody's going to do anything. And they didn't do anything. And if you don't do anything, how are you going to find anything? I mean, it's it's that simple. Right. So there was nobody, nobody had ever looked. If you don't look, you're not going to find anything. We looked, we found everything. I, I know that that particular stone was debatable. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that there were so many Scandinavian immigrants to Minnesota 
that there would have been this idea to kind of like establish that there was a Viking presence there. So that there was a lot of uh, credence in a way to say that it was a hoax. But but you established it pretty well that it was way before well, that. How 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 old is it? Well, first of all, there was no credence that it was a hoax. That's right. that's a myth in itself. I mean, it's it's not a matter of um, you know what people think. It's a matter it's a matter of evidence, and there is no evidence to support that it's a hoax. And how can there be? Because it's not a hoax. I mean. That's one of the, the misnomers of this whole thing and really a forensics that people don't understand. We yeah. have voluminous evidence in multiple disciplines that are consistent with it being a genuine artifact. If that's true, how can there possibly be evidence to support the contrary? It can't exist. It's not possible. And I've said this many times. I said, look, I'm still waiting for the first piece of factual evidence to prove that it's a hoax, and and no one has brought anything forward, and they're not going to because it's not there. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, well, I I don't think it's hard to believe, and I'm not one of these people that, you know, I I definitely don't look at, like, say, like, Christopher Columbus was first. I believe that there was a whole line of people that were here. Uh, But we definitely know that the Vikings were here. They were in North America. That's admitted around 1000 A.D., so is it really hard to think about the river system to go down the St. Lawrence River into the Great Lakes and that they would have come to someplace like Minnesota? It's definitely navigable and it's definitely travelable to that area. Of course. Uh, I mean, and here again, I'll go back to my, my logic. And, and really, if you, if you distill it down to logic, it makes this whole problem much easier. The runestone is dated 1362, by the way, to answer your earlier question. Okay. Um, which is late medieval times. And this is not a Viking artifact. This has absolutely nothing to do with Vikings. And that's, that's one of the, another one of the myths about the runestone. People talk about Vikings. And, gotcha. and even I knew that this thing, you know, 1362 had nothing to do with Vikings. But yet here we are today, people are still talking about Vikings. I mean, it's ridiculous. But, right. um, anyway, um, the runestone having, you know, being a Minnesota rock. That in itself, and being genuine, proves that they that they got here. It doesn't tell you which route they took, but clearly they got here. That's not a debate. And so I hear a lot of people say to me, oh, well, I don't believe it because they couldn't have got here. Well, get over it. They, here it is. They got here. I mean, it's I don't get that. It's like this, this that's, you know, <laughs> now, it's is like being this... a little bit pregnant or something. I mean, it, right. there it is, you know. Now, is this is this like is this is this Knights Templar in origin, or is this kind of more the um, the Prince Madoc story? No, Prince Madoc would have been uh, earlier, uh, much earlier. Okay. This well, it could have been Prince Madoc. I guess that's possible, but it, really, the timing doesn't work. This is this is kind of getting into late medieval times, and this is shortly after the put down of the Knights Templar, who, you know, people say disappeared to history, and we showed in the pirate show that that's that's not true either. I mean, no, the Templars not. continued on right. as an official order for another 500 years uh, in Portugal. So the narrative of the Knights Templar really needs to change, and I think we just have to stop. I mean, the 1307 put down was a very important. Uh, point in in the history of the Templars, but you got to remember we're only talking about fifteen to twenty percent at most of the Templars that were uh, put down in France. 
they were all over Europe into Scandinavia and into the Holy Land. We're talking 85% of the order was unaffected by the put-down. Now, what happened after that is they went underground, except in Portugal, they officially continued to exist for another 500 years. So that's a very, very important thing, and it it really does uh, profoundly change the narrative of the Templars. Yeah, they they continue to exist as the Order of Christ. Yes, um, for another five hundred years. So, and and thirteen sixty two actually is is a perfect period because it is just after the put down, and you know what were they doing? I mean, we don't know what they were doing. I mean, they had to go underground. They had to maintain strict secrecy. They weren't going to let anybody know what they were doing, and they certainly didn't want people to know who they really were and what they really believed. And that's one of the myths of the of the Templars as well, is that there's a lot more to who the leadership of the Templars were than, you know, the good Catholic fighting force for the church that everybody thinks they were. They hardly were that. So do you think that Henry Sinclair or St. Clair, that they came over here in the 1300s yeah. and no, no. That, that treasure is here? I think that they came around 1400, 1400. according to the the legend of uh, in 1398, and you know it's it's hard to say for sure what they brought over. I'm sure they brought tangible treasure, but most people think that what they brought was the bloodline, was the the tangible bloodline that was flowing in their veins, okay. and they purposefully aligned with the Native Americans because, as I mentioned before. The core of what they were really all about was their ideology. Their true belief system was not Catholic. It was anything but that. They were monotheists, and they were dualists, and they were living in balance. And it's actually an ancient faith that goes way, way back Gnosticism. To, e- to Egypt and beyond. And so they would have been compatible with the ideology of the natives, and in fact they were. And that's how they formed these secret alliances over here in both North and South America and Central America. And uh, they had great success here. I mean, there's no way you're going to get to Minnesota unless the natives let you. Was their religion, was it based in Gnosticism? Yes. Okay. What yep. were, I mean, what were some of their beliefs? And, and was there any validity to the charges that the Catholic Church, the, like the whole head of Baphomet thing, was there any validity to that? Well, I think that, well, were there, was there validity to some of the charges that they made? Um, I, I guess it depends on your point of view. From the Catholic standpoint, of course, absolutely. Now, the head of Baphomet, you know, were they worshiping the head of something? Um, I think the head that they were worshiping was uh, one of their past masters, John the Baptist. And, okay. you know, what, ha- what happened to him? So it, it was turned into something a little bit differently. Um, and I think a lot of it is allegory. Is allegory. I think it's been twisted and and turned around into something that it's really not. And we have to be careful when we talk about these things. And, you know, let's face it, the church is going to put a spin on it to make them sound as, as, you know, as bad as they can to justify the atrocities they committed against these people. But it was a matter of ideology. It was a matter of money and, you know, and and power and control. I mean, isn't that what's... (laughs) Isn't that what it always is about? <laughs> right, exactly. That is what it's always about. I want to talk about pirate treasure of the Carib- uh, tr- Caribbean. Pirate treasure of the Knights <laughs> Templar. Uh, <laughs> Let's talk about Davy Jones' locker. Oh, yeah, what do you guys want to do? <laughs> 
what discoveries prompted that investigation and that and and that TV show? Well, I was brought on kind of late into the you know into the the scene of that story. I was asked originally to come on just as a person to kind of evaluate some of the artifacts they were finding in Pirate Cove that they thought might be Templar or uh, related to Freemasonry. And, you know, I have a background in some of that, so they wanted me to comment on them. But what happened was we started to find so much good stuff, and the crew that I was traveling with really was finding so much good stuff, and uh, it was going so well that my role expanded um, to the point where it, you know, it became about half the show. And... You know, as they, they pulled up the silver bar and then they found other artifacts with Maltese crosses and AVMs and the Christ figure that had some very specific features that pointed to India ultimately. Um, I, I just, I just kept taking these things and running with them and it was, uh, it was great. So it, it, it really just unfolded, um, not quite chronologically the way you saw it. There was a little bit of a sure. um, some editing to kind of weave the story together. But yeah, we get that magic that, going. That editing. Oh magic. yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think they were trying to paint it out to be anything more than it was. There was a little right. bit of sensationalism here and there, but you know that that happens with every show. But uh, they stuck pretty much to uh, you know to the to the script as far as how it unfolded, and and it was great. I mean. It's, it, it, it got to be a little bit complicated at times, but some of the stuff gets to be a little complicated, a little uh, dense. But I thought they did a good job of telling the story. I really like the guy that, like, cussed every other word. <laughs> oh, you mean uh, I'm trying, uh, that was uh, – I wasn't cussing a lot. No, it wasn't you. At least it wasn't you. camera. <laughs> There, there was uh, the one guy that was, Chris, I think you're talking about Chris Maycourt. Yeah, he, he he was always like he, he was always like this is a bleeping great find here. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, he's a good dude, man. I I liked him a lot. He um uh, he was you know Barry's right hand guy, and he he was really good with sound bites. And he's a smart guy. He knows a lot about pirate history, and and um, you know it was really fun to to work with him. So we had a great time. So what's the connection between pirates and the island of Madagascar and the Knights Templar? I mean, what's what's the connection there? Because it, it's it seems like that's something that is like there's pirates and then there's the Knights Templar and never the twain shall meet. But it's like that's not exactly true because there's symbolism there. Like the, the first thing is I think of is the skull and crossbones. Right. I mean, that's there in Freemasonry, and that's also the, the famous pirate emblem as well. Right. Well, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that you could argue is uh, is consistent with this possible connection with the Templars and, and Freemasonry and pirates um, is, you know, things like the skull and crossbones. And actually, after the put-down, when, the you know, the fleet of ships disappeared, and it wasn't just the ships at Lower Shell, there were a lot of other Templar ships that were in other parts and other ports uh, around the Mediterranean and Europe. Um, but once they were put down and they became a fugitive order, um, you know, it would really lend itself to... Uh, to piracy. I mean, it really it it really makes a lot of sense that that's what they would do. Now, some people will argue that they don't believe that. Well, this isn't a matter of faith. Again, it's a matter of evidence. And and truth be told, it's really tough to find a lot of evidence 
because remember, you're talking about an order that's operating in strict secrecy. They don't want people knowing what they're doing. So this tie to pirates and Templars, um, you know, isn't, uh, you can't just go and look at documents in, in some repository library or, or university and, and find it. it it's, they, they went out of their way to, to cover their tracks. So right. it's, diff- it's very difficult. But it does make all the sense in the world, and uh, you know you can say that it happened, and no one's going to be able to prove you wrong. Uh, but it is—it's also very difficult to prove it true. How does Madagascar fit into this? Well, I think one of the big things about Madagascar that people need to understand is that during the age of exploration, <clears throat> there was. Uh, you know, ships coming out of not just Portugal, but other ports going all around the world to the Americas. And uh, there was a lot of trade going to the Far East and, and to India. And the only way to get there at that time was to go around the southern tip of Africa and then into the Indian Ocean. And you just head north. And right as you come around the uh, the east side of of, uh, of Africa, you, you run into Madagascar. You can't miss it. Right. And and so this this was a, a perfect haven for pirates to hang out and just pick off ships as they were, you know, as they were going around the Cape there or on their way back from these other ports in India and the Far East. So that's how Madagascar fits into it. And the other reason why it was perfect for pirates over there is because most of the, um, uh, you know, corporations that were, <clears throat> um, you know, had ships like the East India Company um, that that had ships in the Atlantic Ocean were patrolling primarily off the western coast of Africa, and they were protecting those trade routes because the most important commodity that was being traded at that time were slaves right. coming out of Africa. Yeah, so they were guarding the yeah. western coast of Africa, but not the eastern coast. So that's why the pirates pretty much had their way. And so when you went around the Cape and you were you were heading into the Indian Ocean, it was uh, at your own risk. Now, what pirates were there at the time? Well, they had the you know the pirate Laboos. You had Captain Kidd was there, uh, Blackbeard. I mean, you had these a lot. Of, I mean, just about every pirate that you can name uh, spent time in the Indian Ocean because it was you know it was a it was fertile ground. What what were some of the links between Captain Kidd uh, and do you believe that he was a Freemason? Well, you know, at the time that Captain Kidd was, uh, I mean, he was killed in 1701. Um, you know, Freemasonry didn't officially exist until 1717, but right. that was really just its coming out party. Freemasonry absolutely existed prior to that. It just wasn't a, an official order. So, um, you know, was he a member of Freemasonry? I think he probably was. He certainly was dealing with people that were involved in secret societies. But, you know, was it a, was it really Freemasonry at the time? Not officially, but unofficially, I'd say absolutely. Well, I know it existed. Whether he was a member is, is just not clear. Because there's a link there, I think, between the Knights Templar and the Freemasons. Uh, you know, I mentioned Holy Blood, Holy Grail earlier. There's right. another book uh, written by a couple of the same authors called The Temple and the Lodge, where yep. they, they look at that uh, and, they, and they look at the Knights Templar uh, finding sanctuary in Scotland, which at the time Robert the Bruce was actually excommunicated right. from the Catholic Church. So they were able to go up there. And eventually, through the course of about 400 years, 
that kind of morphs into Scottish Freemasonry. Right, right. Well, yeah, no, and and actually, I mean, truth be told, Freemasonry uh, has existed for thousands of years. This is this is nothing right. new. Again, it was it was uh, they're talking about the evolution of the Scottish Rite, um, but there was uh, an awful lot going on in many parts of the world. I mean, much of what you know the Egyptians were doing was what we would call Freemasonry today. I mean, if you look at Freemasonry today, I mean, do you see Egyptian symbolism everywhere? And, you know, is that just because they think it's cool? <laughs> no. <laughs> right, yeah. There's a connection. There's, there are direct connections. And, and it weaves through um, a lot of this uh, Egyptian mythology, Egyptian um, uh, esoteric uh, rituals and beliefs go right through Templarism into modern Freemasonry. So it's a continuous thread. I mean, the, 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 the truth be told, Jesus was a grand master. The people in the Essene and the Nazarene sects were initiates. They basically were the PhDs of their day, and they were passing on the ancient mysteries, which are nothing more than the seven classic arts and sciences. So, um, you know, to be an initiate was to be somebody who was being educated, uh, getting a higher education. And so I don't know, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's all been veiled and it was kept secret at the time, but now it's, uh, it's coming out. I mean, that, that's what, that's what it's all about. But the problem is when the Roman church took over, they wanted to control knowledge and information. And so, they uh, changed the story. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it, have you ever been to the uh, Scottish Rite Freemasonry headquarters in, in Washington, D.C.? Yes. It's an amazing place. Yes, it is. It's a building, uh, the Scottish Rite Temple you're talking about on 16th yeah. Street. Yeah. It's it's incredible. In fact, we filmed there for this uh, for this show, but that those scenes never made it into the oh, final really? edit. Really? Well, they weren't necessary. They just yeah. they didn't fit into the story. But I've been there a few times, and it's an incredible building. It, it really is. What's the link of the skull and crossbones? Because you mentioned in the show, you know, in Pirate Treasure of the Knights Templar, yep. you mentioned about that being a symbol for Jesus. Now, when I think of the Knights, when I think of the skull and crossbones, you know, I, I think of pirates, but I also think of something like the Skull and Bone Society at Yale. Right. The three two two symbol. Right. Well actually the, the 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 origin of the skull and bones goes back to the Ashwari culture in, in Jerusalem of the of the Nassim and, and, and the Nazarene sects, Jesus' people and this this secret society, if you will, that existed at that time. And basically only the family could process you know, the bodies of their of their loved ones after they died. And so they would they would carve an underground tomb, and then they would um, process the bodies with perfumes and oils, and then they would put them inside of the burial tomb on a bench and leave them for one to two years and let the bodies decompose. Then they would collect the bones and put them inside of a stone box called an ossuary, uh, where only that was big enough so that only the two largest bones in the body, the femurs, would fit inside crossed, and then they would put the skull in last, and there's your skull and crossbones. So it's a symbol of death, for sure. It's a symbol of mortality, and when you see it in uh, associated with Masonic symbols, the point is to remember your own mortality, that life is short, and that we're all going to be dead someday. I mean, we all know that, but I, I, I don't think 
um, that we uh, always fully appreciate that and, and, and live life to the fullest because, you know, it's, it, it, it's not going to last. And so, but it's a symbol of death, but it's also to those in the know, a symbol of reverence for Jesus because that ossuary culture was, was his people. Hmm. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I know I've definitely wasted a lot of days of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, you know what? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 the one thing that I, I want to try to make sure that I, I don't do is I don't want to, uh, offend anybody talking about some of these things. You know, I mean, let's face it, Jesus is probably the most well-known person in the history of humanity. And, and people have very strong feelings about Jesus and who he was and what he represents. And I can appreciate that. Right. But I always tell people, look, when you're talking about these things, you have to make sure that you define the discussion. Are we talking about faith? Or are we talking about science and real life? And <clears throat> you just got to make sure that, you know, you define what your the parameters are, because if you don't, you can't get anything done. And people get offended. And I certainly don't want to offend anybody. I'm just trying. Look, I was the guy that was doing my job on the runestone. That's what started this whole mess. And, you know, <laughs> people attack me and criticize me for doing my job. And I want answers. And that's, that's what I've, that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. And this is where the trail has led me. And people ask me to, to give them the truth. Well, Careful what you wish for, I guess, huh? <laughs> right. Oh, right, yeah. We're right there with you, it's, that, and that's what it's all about. And, is and just, I would, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, just, just the truth in general. We're out there for the truth. We're not looking for anything specific. We're not ever digging for this or that. It's yeah. It's yeah. I mean, and, and you know, you have to be really careful um, because sometimes people will fall in love with their own ideas, and I've been accused of that. And I guess you know, I mean, obviously, I think I'm right about a lot of these things I'm working on. But on the other hand, um, I have I'm, I've been trained on this. I've done it for 35 years. I know I know when I'm starting <laughs> to fall down the wrong well, you know, and. So I, I really am careful, and I don't say something unless I believe it to be true, unless I have the evidence to support it. It's not a and, and and keep in mind one other thing, and this is something that you know I get criticized by a lot of people out there that I call skeptics, and some people call them trolls. But these people are are, are really. Um, they're really dishonest in their argumentation. They just take the, the opposite side of whatever it is that you say and try to argue it. And and I, I just get really tired of that. People that because, are contrary. It's okay to ask questions, okay? But when there's a fact that, that, that has been demonstrated or proven, they have to accept that fact, but they don't. So when that starts to happen, then I'm done talking to them. It's just like, forget <laughs> it, you know. But but here's the thing that they have to remember, is that I'm a licensed professional. Um, I took an oath when I got my PG after my name. And it's not just a matter of ethics that I promise to do things the right way and all this, but I'm, I also am responsible and held accountable by a board. And if I do something wrong, stupid or unethical, I can lose my license to practice. I could potentially lose my job. So I take that very seriously. Yeah, there's and a risk if, there. Right. Oh, oh absolutely. And, and if, uh, you know, and everything, every conclusion that I reach, whether it's in my professional world or archaeology or whatever I'm working on, I have to be prepared 
to testify in a court of law under oath to my findings. I've done it many times, and I've never lost. And the reason I haven't lost isn't because I'm so wonderful. It's because I never go to court uh, to argue a case unless I know I have the evidence uh, to support my findings. And if I have a client that I'm working for and it's his fault or her fault, I'll tell him. And I'll say, look, don't, don't go to court on that because I'm not going to lie for you. You better settle. So those cases, they, they don't go to trial. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I don't know. I kind of got lost there. I've been on a roll for a while, but the, no, I think I made my point. Well, I mean, the, the, the Jesus ossuary, I mean, is there... I, I, I mean, is is it? I, I guess the, to you, it's not like a really debatable thing. I know there's been so much written about it uh, on on either side. I, I, I mean, do you, do you think that for some people that are really religious Christians that they're going to really say, "Oh, okay, well, you know, it's been settled." I, I really don't think so. Well, I, I, again, you have to define. You know what? What? How you're going to talk about this? Are we talking about science, facts, in real life, or are we yeah. talking about faith? If you're talking about faith, I mean, Jesus could rise up out of the grave and say, "I was here," and um, they won't accept it. They, they just won't. I mean, um, look. You look at the ossuaries. You look at the names on the ossuaries. Seven ossuary names. All seven correspond to the royal family, including Jesus and Mary Magdalene, are in the same tomb. I mean, what more do you want? <laughs> I mean, there it is. And, and uh, it all fits. I mean, the, the, it's a complicated story, but when you, you break it down to the facts and you look at it, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's him. And uh, the bones were inside the box uh, in both ossuaries. And what can I tell you? There it is. So do you believe that there's a bloodline from Jesus and Mary Magdalene? Absolutely. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Hey, think about it like this, okay? I mean, this this is like, oh, my God, this is, of course there is. Here, let me, let me put it to you this way, okay? Every person walking on the planet today, seven plus billion, okay? Yeah. Has ancestors that were alive 2,000 years ago, right? That's a fact. Right? Right. Every one of us have ancestors that go back 2,000 years. Okay. That's a fact. So why is it such a stretch to say that people living back then couldn't have descendants that are alive today? I mean, it's like, duh. <laughs> it's like, what's the problem? Now, not every person who lived back then has descendants today. Of course. But a hell of a lot of them do. And Jesus and Mary had according to different sources, as many as four children, and their children had children, you do the math, it adds up pretty quick. So, and, and, and descendants of, their, of, of his brothers. And, uh, you know, if she had brothers and sisters. So the royal family's descendants, I, w I think the odds are that they absolutely must have people alive today, probably in the tens of thousands, if not millions. So were the Knights Templar, were they instrumental in protecting this bloodline or protecting this, this secret? Of course they were, because they were part of it. They, yeah. were, they were some of those descendants. They were some of the families. Of course they were. Why would they fight? I mean, think about it. What would give them added additional motivation? 
not just protecting you know the the bloodline uh, in the royal positions, but they were members of it themselves. Yeah. So the Knights Templars they continue on past thirteen oh seven, and they become the Order of the Christ. Uh, you know, in Portugal. Did, in, in Portugal. Portugal. How did yeah. they continue that tradition? Uh, well, they just they just carried on their rituals and their um, and their practices that they had been doing for the whole time. Nothing changed. Yeah. They're still doing it. What's the significance of the triple towel? Well, the triple towel is is uh, you know I'm still working on the triple towel, but it's the most important symbol of what they call the royal arch in um, uh, the royal arch degree in York Rite Masonry. And when you, and, and if you go on my, my blog, scottwalteranswers.blogspot.com, you will see a Masonic apron of the York Rite. Right. And on the flap above, uh, at the top of the apron is a symbol, a triple towel within a circle, within a, within a delta, or within a delta within a circle. The circle and the delta are both Masonic symbols of the deity. So to have the triple towel inside of that is very important. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that the triple towel also looks very, very close to the IH in the IHS symbol of uh, that's symbolic of Jesus in the temple uh, at Jerusalem. Interesting. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the shorthand uh, symbols of Jesus was. IH in the first century. They added the S in the in the second century. So that is probably why it's the triple tau is so sacred. There's a connection there. But the tau symbol itself is also an interesting symbol because it has Egyptian uh, connections to it. The the tau is actually something called a nilometer. If you go back into ancient Egypt, well, way way back thousands of years, and a nilometer was a simple uh, T-shaped bar that was used to measure the height of the Nile. And if the uh, the height of the Nile was a certain height and it was flood, there would be um, famine and death. The floods would wash away people if the uh, or wash away their crops and and their their homes and and the um, and if the the water of the Nile was too low, their they wouldn't have enough water for crops. There'd be death. And if the water was high, then there would be prosperity. So it literally morphed into a symbol of life or resurrection. Um, every year. And if you think about it, you've heard of the Egyptian Ankh, right? Right. Yes. The Ankh is a symbol of life, right? Well, all it is is a Tao symbol with a handle on it. That's why that's what the, that's what the, uh, the Ankh is. And it's probably the most important symbol, uh, Egyptian symbol. Now it's interesting on the show that they found that silver, that large silver bar that had the Tao on it, and you later go to Goa in India, which was used to be a Portuguese possession, and you find that symbol on all these grave sites there for some of these, the Order right, of Christ guys. Right, on, five, on four different grave slabs, five different examples. So, so is there some, is, like with the pirates themselves, was, in, in a way, was this kind of like a competition between these two um, successors of the Templars, you had the Order of Christ, and then maybe these pirates who were also 
kind of these proto Freemasons? And was this was there more to it than just gaining this kind of like pirate booty, so to speak? Well, I I don't know. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure if there was a competition between them. I think, look, there, there's no question that the uh, the Order of Christ established Goa. And the Portuguese, I also call them the Portuguese Templars, operated right. successfully for over two centuries there. And then starting in the, you know, the early 1700s, things started to go in the ditch. And eventually they, uh, after another century or so, they were completely out of there. But um, whether they were competing with, you know, other Templar orders that were part of um, masonry, I, I don't know if that's really the case. I think the pirates... Many of these pirates that we're talking about were not members of Masonic orders. They were just rogue guys. Now, they may have interacted with uh, some Masonic groups, but um, we just don't know. I mean, it's murky water. It's just murky water. We're trying to figure it out. It seems that Captain Kidd himself, uh, from, and I learned actually a lot about him from watching that show, that he Captain seemed, Kidd? Yeah, from Captain Kidd. Yeah, that, yeah. That he seemed to have been, that he had a lot of uh, some serious financial backers. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, he was started off as a privateer. Um, he legally was entitled to raid certain ships and, you know, split the booty with, uh, um, you know, with the crown. Uh, the problem was is that he ran into some tough luck. I mean, they went on, you know, part of it was brought on by his own arrogance. This was the story of Captain Kidd and what happened with him was not, uh, uh, we didn't tell that part of the story. They yeah. just didn't have time for it. But when he was first leaving England, he had a, a top-notch crew. And as he was sailing down uh Oh, God, what's the main river there? I can't think of it. I'm having a... The, the Thames? Thames River, right. Yeah. Um, he went by the, uh, you know, the the ship of the Queen, uh, the Queen ship, and his crew, who were, weren't big on... Uh, they didn't care much for the Queen. So that, that might tell you that they were some of these free spirits that could have been associated with Freemasonry. But they dropped their drawers and they mooned the Queen <laughs> ship as they went by. And then the British Navy pulled them over and, uh, you know, as they were just getting to sea. And basically what they did is they instantly recruited their his best men and took them for the Royal Army or Royal Navy. And impress them otherwise. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. he just said, you know what, these guys, are, and they, and I'm sure they knew who these guys were, right? And so they took the best men, and he was left shorthanded. So then he came over to America and tried to put together the rest of his crew, but he couldn't find anybody who was any good. So he's basically he was left with thieves and and outlaws uh, to fill out the rest of his uh, his crew, and you know they were tough to handle and. They ran into uh, a drought where they weren't pulling over any ships. They weren't getting any booty. And, you know, they split the booty with, you know, all the men of the ship. And they were getting pretty pissed off. And they were getting ready to mutiny. And uh, so he had he had a problem on his hands. So they did pull over a ship. I can't think of it right now. That was that had papers that were for both uh, uh, to France and to England. Now he was he was by law he was allowed to uh take a French ship, but he was working for the British and they also had papers that uh you know were for, signed by the Crown. So he had a real dilemma on his hands. 
um, but with his crew just about ready to mutiny, and you've got this ship that's loaded with treasure, he made the decision to take, you know, to take the booty. And that was what really got him into trouble. And I think his backers at that point uh, realized that, you know, this wasn't working out because I'm sure there were other alliances between the New World. Most of his financial backers were in the New World, and they had business arrangements with the British, and this is their guy taking this British ship. I mean, that caused a huge problem. And so eventually they just decided that, uh, kid was expendable. That instead of them getting the brunt, they had to uh, they had to take care of him, and so that's what happened. And he just became uh, politically expendable, and uh, it cost him his life. You know, but that's the way things go in life. Sometimes you make decisions, uh, but you know what? On the other hand, if he hadn't made that decision, they may have strung him up and thrown him overboard anyway. So. Um, I guess, you know, it's it's all a matter of context, and he just did what he thought was the best decision at the time. I think the lesson here is don't moon the queen. Yeah. <laughs> was there well, a... You know what? I mean, you're a captain. you got to tell your guys <laughs> to calm down and, you know, <laughs> knock it off, if it's you all, will. It's all that rub. <laughs> was there something you wanted to ask, Luke? Oh, no. I, I was just thinking about splitting the booty. Oh, splitting the booty. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Now you're thinking of a different booty, pal. <laughs> After the podcast, man. After the podcast. Scott, are you familiar with uh, the work of uh, Walter Bosley? He's one of the guests that we've had on this show. Um, Walter Bosley? Yeah. he uh, He's come out with a couple of books called Secret Missions, and he kind of he kind of mines a similar field to what you're talking about with the Knights Templar stuff. He he mentions the uh, the Order of Christ and in one of his books, he talks about Juan Cabrillo and the possibility of Cabrillo being uh, one of the conquistadors that explored California, that he mentions the possibility that, that he was a Templar, uh, he was a member of this Order of Christ, and the possibility that, uh, the, that the Excalibur sword is somewhere in California. Mm. Well, I guess, uh, you know, anything's possible. I don't... Uh... Um, you know, I, I, I will tell you this, there's, there's a lot that I'm aware of that I'm not talking about. And I, yeah. I do know a lot of other things and I can tell you that truth is stranger than fiction for sure. And I've learned that, you know, some of the most impossible sounding things, ridiculous sounding things are not ridiculous at all. In fact, they're true. And so, Hey, I, I'm up for just about anything. So what order of Masons do we have to become to learn the same secrets as you know? <laughs> good question. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I know an awful lot of Masons, and I'm good friends with a bunch of them. And, and, and I, they tell me all the time that, um, that I know more about Masonry than most Masons. I don't know if that's true, but um, I, I can tell you this. They've been extremely supportive. And, uh, you know, I, I, there's, I, you know, one thing I will say is that this is my own opinion and I, I formulated this opinion strictly from my own research. And that is, um, you know, we have guys like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, who was a member of the Lodge of Nine Sisters in France. So he wasn't a Mason in this country, but he was there. And, Ben Franklin and, you know, Paul Revere and all these great guys that we brag about all the time that founded our country, wrote these beautiful documents that, you know, I mean, we elevate these guys to near godlike status. 
and they were all Freemasons. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we learned that in school, but we never learned what is a Freemason? What is that all about? Is that important? How does that relate? And does it have anything to do with why these were great men? And the answer is absolutely it does. Our country was founded on Masonic principles, but nobody in this country understands that. And I guess what, what I've concluded is that they were able to do some amazing things back in their day that we all acknowledge and accept. And I believe that if we had more Masons operating in government, that we wouldn't have the gridlock that we have now, that we would, we would have um, people there that were really sincerely more interested in doing what's best for the masses instead of what's best for themselves. <laughs> and uh, I really believe that. I do. So you so you see that, that those are more the statesman-like qualities of someone that would be a Mason. Now, 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 we get all this kind of stuff in the conspiracy theory, and I was going to make a joke there with Luke that you had to be the 666th degree to learn all the secrets. <laughs> but uh, we get all this conspiracy theories with the Masons and the Illuminati and all that right, kind of stuff. Right. Do, you, do you believe that there is such a thing as the Illuminati? Or, uh, uh, but do you, well, do you I, see yeah, any of this is. stuff can be negative? <clears throat> Yeah, really? no, I know that I, I know that there is. And, you know, I guess, um, you know, I think what, what people think about with the Illuminati is that they're they're trying to build a one world order. And, you know, it's like anything else. When you don't understand something, you know, people kind of go in different directions and, and it, it veers farther and ever farther and farther away from the truth. I'm not saying I know what the Illuminati is all about, but what what I do know and this is my own opinion, but it's based on, on plenty of evidence that as our population grows on this planet, um, we're going to have to uh, come together and uh, we're not going to be able to have as much of the individual stuff that we have, the freedoms that we have today. You just, you just, it's just not going to happen. As more and more people come, we're going to have um, a global co uh, currency at some point. We're going to have, uh, you know, some type of global food distribution, uh, communications, intelligence, uh, a world government probably. I mean, eventually that's where it has to go. The world is getting smaller and smaller all the time, and um, I just don't – I just see it as inevitable unless we get our population under control. I think that's something that we, we have to do, and um, – with that, I think is going to come a, a universal world where um, it's all going to sort of—I don't know what the best way to describe it is—it's going to all be taken care of for us, or we're yeah, going like to have to operate within a universal system. I, 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 agree. I, th I think that's definitely the natural progression of where we've been headed for thousand years well, for a long time yeah. yeah like a like a utopia kind of like francis bacon the new atlantis you speak in my language right now yeah. <laughs> well yeah i mean i don't know I, I i i don't know how we can't i don't know how we can go any other way i'm not saying it? i like it I, I i personally don't like it i huh. wish that we would be smarter and figure out a way to control our population <laughs> and our resources and oh, totally. and uh figure out ways to uh you know, spread it out more equally, but that's that's not the system that we have. And part of the reason that we have this population pro, uh, problem is in part due to religion. And um, I I think that's something that we need to to work on. How, how so? Like, I mean, like like the uh, abolition of birth control. I mean, is that 
Well, that's that's one piece of it. <laughs> okay. That's certainly one part of it. And uh, some populations, I mean, I don't want to get too far into religion because I'm not a religious expert, but I know that there are some tenants within certain religions that they want to populate as much as possible. So that that's a sign of, of numbers and strength. And, and I just don't, you know, I guess on one hand, that's, that might be true to a point, uh, to a certain degree, but I, uh, I, I don't adhere to that philosophy at all. What do you think about the Georgia Guidestones? Um, I think uh, a lot of it has to do with what we uh, talked about on the show is that, you know, and, and, and you, whenever you're talking about anything in history, whether it's now or thousands of years ago, you always have to consider context. What was the historical context of that time? What was going on? Well, what was going on? Uh, in 1980 was, you know, we had uh, the threat of nuclear war, and it was a real threat. The Cold War was at its height, and, you know, we were preparing for uh, nuclear winter, that we might have, um, you know, a a nuclear holocaust on our hands. And and I think that the people that designed that uh, were thinking that the survivors would have to have some type of uh, code of conduct or Ten Commandments or whatever you want to call it to live by. And, you know, if you read those commandments on the Georgia Guidestones, they are, um, they make a lot of sense, at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, the only thing that gets people upset is the, uh, the one that says that the population should yeah. be, uh, 500 million people. <laughs> well, if you look at, you know, some studies that have been done back in the, the 70s, um, the numbers are somewhere around, you know, the earth to be in, in balance would be around a million or a billion people. A billion people. So, you know, I guess that's not too far off. But um, I, I personally believe that population is one of the biggest problems that we have on uh, in the planet. Luke, Luke is nodding his head. He yeah. doesn't want to wait in traffic anymore. <laughs> 94 people a day that moved to Nashville. I, I don't know. I just, you know, it, 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 I mean, when when pop, when animal populations or or insect populations or plant populations uh, become extreme, what do we do? We call the herd, right? And and that's that's to uh, to help a species uh, survive. But the rules apply to every other creature on the planet except us, I guess. I'm not saying culling the herd is what yeah. we should do. I'm saying, and and I can tell you that uh, one of the Masonic principles is to seek light, right? to gain knowledge and um, absolutely one of the ways I think we can help control our population is through education Uh, and it's been proven scientifically proven that the more educated women are the fewer number of children they have that's true and so I I, I don't think that we (laughs) we certainly don't need to do anything to people we just need to to lower our birth rates and and maybe that'll happen naturally Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Well, well Scott, a good a good friend of mine uh, has done some investigation on the Georgia Guidestones, and uh, they've actually come out with a movie, uh, a documentary called uh, Dark Clouds Over Elberton. And mm-hmm. they've actually these guys, I think, have really figured out who it was that built it. So I can kind of give you some more information off air, but oh, okay. it's interesting well, stuff. Well, I've had a number of people contact me about that. Yeah, and I have some of the names of people that they think are responsible. So I'd love to see what you guys have, and we can compare notes. 
Yeah, absolutely. I could put you in touch with a, with a good friend of mine that did a lot of the research. Well, you know, and at the end of the day, I have to say that it would be interesting to know. And by the way, I knew uh, Wyatt, uh, uh, Wyatt Martin. Not, uh, Wyatt Martin was yeah. not going to tell me. He was a wonderful guy. I, oh, I really, so you spoke to him. Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, we he was in the show. I mean, okay. I interviewed him in the show, and I asked him if he would reveal the name. I knew he would never tell me. I mean, before yeah. I even went there, I'd go, he's not going to tell me. Are you kidding me? I mean, I, I you know, I did it for the show, of course, and he was good-natured about it, and we, we had a wonderful time, but I knew he wasn't going to tell me. <laughs> I never expected him to. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. A good friend of mine, Dr. Future, and Mike Minnett, uh, they did this movie together, uh, and the, basically we, we've had him on the show uh, to talk about this. Uh, so they went and they, they saw the computer case that Wyatt Martin had all this information in, and they got some shots from some pieces of mail that they were late, later able to trace to a place in, uh, in uh, Fort Dodge, I believe Fort Dodge, Iowa, which of course is too far away from you, I don't think. Yeah, and, no, that's just south of me here. Right. And so that they pretty much were able to like kind of like a process of elimination and through some of the testimony, find out the names of the guys who did it. It's 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 really great, really worth worth watching. So were they were they Freemasons? Well, there's some debate on that. Uh, they think that there's there's some connections with the Freemasons. Uh, some of these guys, there might have been even uh, an association with the Rosicrucian Society in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some there might be some links there. Uh, well, that would make a lot of sense. I mean, the Rosicru- this would be consistent with their ideology. Right. And the things I've been talking about, um, you know, that that that's that's consistent with some Rosicrucianism. I mean, they 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 want to see uh, a world that's in balance and and a, yeah. and a humanity that's in balance, and that's that's what the hooked X is. That's what the monotheistic dualism is. That's 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 the ideology that I've been talking about. Part of it is the whole concept of living in balance, and and that's why they got along so so well with Native Americans. I mean, that's one of the things I figured out a long time ago. I mean, the natives had it have had it figured out for thousands of years how to live in balance with their environment and to respect and appreciate the Creator and what the Creator has given them. Um, and uh, you know, we we came over here, and it was the church that was behind demonizing the Native Americans, labeling them savages, which is, you know, the age-old technique that, that groups do to dehumanize a, a certain segment so they can commit atrocities against them. And it's it's sickening, and it's, you know, and it's time that the story was told about the truth about the Native Americans and the church's role in that and how the, the genocide that took place here. I mean, that's what happened. Yeah. Let's just call it what it is. There was a lot of and, complicity there. Well, and, and, and look, part of it was the bloodline was brought over here and put into the natives intentionally. That's how you assimilate with natives. You intermarry with them. Really? And, and so, of course. <laughs> and so by, you know, Killing the natives, you conveniently get rid of the bloodline at the same time. You get rid of the witnesses that know the truth about what happened over here. I think you've just blown Luke's mind. Yeah. This isn't too well, Think about <laughs> it. I mean, seriously, guys, think about it. I mean, it's pretty basic shit. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Pardon my French, but no problem. You know, people, people, people hear me say this and they go, oh, my God, this is amazing. I go, really? 
Is this amazing? <laughs> if they came over here and they were successful, ask the natives, what do you have to do? You have to assimilate. You have to share your blood. That's how you become one with them. And if you do that, they will. you'll have all the success in the world. Most of the Templars that came over here stayed. They liked it here. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, those those Native women are beautiful. I mean, I'm, all women are beautiful. And, and, you know, it worked out. It was a nice gig, so they, they stayed with it. It was a good good thing. I mean, this is the truth that nobody nobody's ever been told, but why not? Because the church and certain entities just didn't want it to come out. You know, I look at the pre-Columbian America, and I definitely believe that there were many people that came over here, Phoenicians, uh, possibly the Jews, uh, you know, definitely the Vikings, the, Jews, the, well, there the was Templars. Some Jewish entity here for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, so, I, so I look at the, the pre-1492 that this really was a place of refuge for a lot of different groups, especially something like the Templars that had been persecuted. This definitely. would have been the perfect place for them to come. And I, I really believe that, like, you know, I mentioned Francis Bacon, the new Atlantis. There was definitely that um, that skein of thought there that were, that they probably already knew that the new world was there. Of course they did. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely they did. They knew all about what was here. And, um, yeah, they knew. <laughs> well, it's, no, it's no secret. And this nonsense of people... Saying that you know, like Christopher Columbus, what a joke! I mean, they, they, you know, they're, not, they're, they're really not even uh, harping on that anymore because we know that the Vikings were here before that. But yeah. but here's the interesting thing: what I tell people is, look, academics want us to believe that the Vikings definitely came here in the year 1000, but then they want us to believe that nothing happened. Nobody dared venture yeah. over here right. for 500 years until Chris didn't land in North America <laughs> and discover a, a continent that had tens of millions of people already living here. Yeah. That's what they want us to believe. Think about that for a second. 500 years. What, were people scared? Did suddenly this, this, uh, this adventurous spirit of, of uh, these navigators that the Vikings certainly were and everywhere around the world – they just decided, ooh, we don't want to go over there. There's a fence around the continent or something. <laughs> I mean, think about it. It's friggin' nonsense. It is. It really is. It's just crazy. It makes no sense at all. But that's what they want us to believe. Well, I think what Columbus did was was it was definitely a change because all of a sudden you had a, a, an organized state, that was, which was Spain, that was interested in the colonization of the New World. And they probably someone it, it, secret societies probably already knew that it was here. It's just that at that, that certain point things changed because all of a sudden it was more organized. It was organized colonization. Right. Well, and it wasn't just, it was colonization because they wanted to exploit the resources right. and they didn't want to deal with the natives and be, and treat them fairly, which they could have, but they just said, screw it. We're just going to kill them and we'll just take it. I mean, that's essentially what they did. You know, yeah. I mean, we broke every treaty we ever made with them and, and uh, gave them, you know, blankets infected with smallpox. I mean, we committed all these atrocities yeah, on them. It's real nice. <laughs> and, I mean, it's just ridiculous. But not, And why doesn't anybody ever talk about it? Bought Manhattan Island for $24 and some beads. 
Yeah, I think <laughs> it goes on. The list goes on and on, man. I mean, I've got a, a couple of books that talk about the, the deals that they made. It's just a joke. My God, it's like, I mean, and and, and, and natives, the concept of owning land, they, they don't have a word. There's for no that. concept, right? There's they, no they, concept. That's not a concept. They had territories, you know that that you know they respected, but they didn't own the land, and so that was you know you're dealing. <laughs> imagine negotiating with somebody. Um, for ownership, and they don't even understand the concept. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty right. good gig. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, d- down here where we're at in Tennessee, the big thing is the Trail of Tears and the Cherokee. Oh, yeah. And even when the Cherokee tried to kind of assimilate and they became Christian and they took up the white men's ways, they were still kicked out, still treated well, badly. And they were they were forbidden from you know speaking their own language. I mean it's it's um, it's it's what it's what you call ethnic cleansing. Right, that's you exactly know? what that was. I mean that's that 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 phrase is in our vernacular now is 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 uh, on par with the word genocide. But um, yeah, I'm very close to to, to several. Cherokees uh, down in Tennessee, the Eastern band, the ones that didn't get driven out. Um, And uh, I've heard the stories. I've talked to many of the elders and they remember being in the schools and they couldn't learn it. You know, they had to learn English. They couldn't speak their own tongue. They did anyway. And they were, uh, they had to be Christianized and, um, uh, and they weren't better off for it. I can guarantee you that they'll tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to talk about 9-11, and like I said before, this is something that we've talked about a lot on this show, and we've kind of covered many different aspects, but you have kind of like a firsthand experience of being at the Pentagon. How did you get involved in, in investigating what happened there, and how did that come about? What was the course of it? And then also, what was the conclusions that, that were come up, that came up with? Sure. Well, I got involved when I received a phone call from one of our clients who was uh, the testing firm that was on site during the renovation of the Pentagon that was uh, two years into a 10-year renovation program of uh, of the Pentagon. And he was a guy that I know really have, I've known for years. And uh, he gets on the phone and he says, Scott, you've been assigned to the Pentagon and assigned to the Pentagon. <laughs> And this was uh, about a week after the attack, and and I said, Stan, is this you? <laughs> I mean, he, he went into military mode. He was ex-military, and I was used to the Stan that would call me and tell me jokes for 10 minutes before we would get down to the work. And then he'd right. say, oh, by the way, I got a bunch of cores coming. Here's what I want you to do, boom, boom, boom. But this was after 10 minutes of joke time, right? But there, there was no joking. It was very serious, and he just said, you know, you've been assigned to the Pentagon. And the very next morning, and that was later in the day, I remember that distinctly. And I came home and I told my wife, Janet, and I was, you know, I was excited because this was, this is the most important project that I've, I will ever work on in my career. It's the one thing that I'll always be known for. And uh, I was excited. So I got up early the next morning and I came into work because I thought, boy, they'll probably overnight those samples. And I remember when I walked down the hallway before I, I went into my office, I could smell this weird smell. And it smelled like gasoline, but it was jet fuel. Uh-huh. And when I walked into my office, there was a box sitting there in my chair. 
and that's where the smell was coming from. It was jet fuel soaked concrete samples that we, you know, those are the first samples, but we ended up getting 175 total samples. It's the, it's the largest job we've ever done. Probably the biggest one we'll ever do. Um, and, uh, I remember it was like, I got in there about seven and I'm thinking, how the hell did this get here? And I went over to the drilling department, and they usually get in pretty early, starting at 5.30, 6 o'clock. And I said, do you guys see a delivery truck come? And they said, no. <laughs> I, to this day, I don't know how those samples got there, but I don't, uh, I don't question, question the government when it comes to that stuff anymore. But anyway, um, so we started in on the project. And, and the initial um, um, plan that, that we were assigned to do was to – uh, examine all the fire damaged concrete of the structural beams and columns. That was, this is the, the pieces that were holding the building together. Okay. And this was all steel reinforced, uh, cast in place concrete. And the fire damage, the whole idea was, you know, this column is, needs to be torn out. This one can be repaired. This one is fine. It was a surgical type of, uh, repair that they initially planned to do. But what ended up happening was we documented that the fire damage was severe. It was, it was so severe that there were too many members. They just decided to heck with it. We're not going to do the surgical repair. We're going to tear the whole thing out and start from scratch and, and rebuild the whole thing. And so, that was really the value of it. And it turned out to be the right decision, in my opinion, because it ended up being uh, faster, easier, it was cheaper, and most importantly, it was a safer way to redo the Pentagon. So so that was what the decision was uh, made. And then when they did the reconstruction, uh, I went out there a number of times to uh, to check up on the concrete and, and make sure that they were casting the the proper material i would collect samples bring them back of the steel you know the uh, structural concrete that they were placing and we were placing and stripping forms at about 50 percent of the design strength to hurry things along but the uh it was high strength concrete so even 50 percent was plenty right. to uh to keep the strength going but i can tell you this i also um got to see you know, detailed photos and samples of the damage. And I understand how the plane penetrated the building. I also understand why a lot of people are confused and think that, well, no, that wasn't a plane. It was a missile. And, you know, where, where are the bodies? Where are all the parts of the plane? And what people don't understand is as that plane went through the building, these steel reinforced columns and beams um, literally tore that plane apart quickly. And it was like it went through a paper shredder. And, you know, some of my friends like Leo Titus, who were there 40 minutes after the attack, before the collapsed area went down, um, you know, he said the biggest pieces they saw were about the size of a 6S, you know, cell phone. And, you know, the bodies were, there were no bodies. It was just. So it was like they were disintegrated in a way? Yeah, it just they they were they're, they're, it just just imagine putting something through a blender. It's pretty much pretty much what was left, and the um, and then you had this confined jet fuel fire just incinerated everything. So, um, yeah, I mean if you look on the outside walls, those steel columns 
steel reinforced columns uh, were destroyed. But then the wings, the wings don't have much structural integrity, not when you're going up against uh, steel reinforced concrete building. And they were destroyed, in, you know, upon uh, impact. And then the, the cylinder, the, the body of the plane went through it like a missile and uh, punch it went through, went through three rings of the five rings of the Pentagon and punched through the back of the C ring wall. And it was, uh, it was, uh, I think yeah, it, was that, it was bad. I mean, it was it was bad. I think that's the part that people question there because it seemed to go right through. And if it was like, so it was it almost like kind of like, for lack of a better term, like a knife, a hot knife cutting through butter. Well, it it, it was. Um, I don't know if I would say that because yeah. the, the 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 concrete columns just just broke everything up, and after it went through the first. Uh, and second rings, um, you know, the, the destruct, there were, none of the columns really, uh, needed to be replaced after that. They stood firm. So they just broke it up into pieces. But the main fuselage of the, of the plane was, and where the bulk of the mass was and the energy, it just went right through and punched right through that back wall. But that's as far as it got. Um, and, uh, that's, that's pretty debris. far. That's pretty far. Yeah, it's Dude. pretty far. It's pretty far. But you're talking about a plane that was traveling with, you know, different estimates, 350 to 400 miles per hour. Um, that's that's a lot of energy. Wow. It, yeah, because there's so there's so much de- so much debate on that. You have that footage of where it just kind of shows like an explosion there. Were you actually on site? Yeah, did you actually? There wasn't. There was an explosion for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Did, did you actually go to the site? Yeah. Any time oh yeah, that? I was at the site many times. Yeah. And, and so, did you ever see any of the wreckage itself? No, no. Well, I've seen pictures of the wreckage. I have yeah. pictures of the wreckage. Um, but again, you got to remember the, the the biggest piece of the plane that was left was a piece of landing gear, the main landing gear. It's about oh, really? a foot long section, and I've got a picture of it. Got a picture of one of the um, fans on the, or not the fans, but the uh, it was a, a cylinder coating on the uh, one of the jet engines. You can see, and um, but everything was just ground up into little tiny pieces. And aluminum's not that strong. I mean, it, it it's light and it's strong, but not not in that situation. And then you know you're talking about a hot jet fuel fire that's going to turn that uh, aluminum into uh, molten material, molten uh, metal. What what do you think about the World Trade Center? It, it just well, that's from a whole your, different that's a whole different animal. I was not there, right. so I can't speak for. Well, I was there, but I was there three months later. Yeah. Um. So I I really wasn't there. I I can't really speak to what was going on. But there have been some recent reports that have come out that I'm pretty impressed with, and one of them is that the. Um, you know, one of the things that was not considered during the uh, report that was written about the <clears throat> about the uh, World Trade Center is they just said in the report that the aluminum from the plane just disintegrated. Well, it doesn't just disappear. <laughs> I mean, it was there. And during that hot fire uh, that uh, – and, and we're talking about temperatures around 2,000 Fahrenheit, uh, over 573 degrees, that's when steel – melts, begins to lose its yield and, and melt. And what they say happened is that the aluminum uh, began to, to melt. 
and it became molten. They actually showed some pictures, some strange things that were, you know, sparks that were flowing out of the building. Uh, in yeah. the uh, the videos that you see was actually molten aluminum. And the sprinklers just below on the floor before, uh, floor below, were full, fully operational, and they had flooded the floors. You also had other forms of water. And when aluminum hits water, it uh, molten aluminum, it, it becomes explosive. It will ignite. And we we see this happen in concrete. It doesn't explode, but it expands rapidly. And those explosions that people talked about that some people said were bombs that had been placed inside the building, these uh, engineers said this was the aluminum that was hitting, that was melting in the fire, was dripping down to the lower floors and hitting the sprinkler water that was on the floor, and it was, it was, it was igniting. And those were, that's what the explosions were. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And if you go back and you read those initial reports that came out, they don't account for the aluminum of the airplane. And there was many tens of tons of aluminum. It doesn't just disappear. It has to be accounted for, and it wasn't accounted for in the official report. Now, some people say that's a conspiracy in itself. I don't think so. I think that they just didn't know what to do with it. They were unaware of this chemical reaction that certain engineers in my business are aware of, and these forensic investigators didn't consult with them, apparently. Now, now I know that there's some people that believe that what you're talking about there, uh, there's some, uh, like the guy in uh, Utah, Stephen Jones, that believes that that's presence of a thermite. You mean the presence of some... uh, combustible that was yeah. intentionally put yeah. in there yeah. i don't believe that i don't i don't believe there's any evidence for that i think that okay. i think that that's uh, now having said that i i can't explain what happened to building seven that yeah. looked like a controlled yeah. de- demolition to me yeah and which didn't you know, get hit funny, by there's, any plane there's a bunch right. of cia and bank records in that building that were just you know lost right. forever right that was pretty convenient but you know that that i'm open to but uh, the the World Trade Center, the two towers, I'm not convinced there's anything funny going on there. We've got video of these planes hitting the building. I don't think there's any debate about that. There are families that are mourning uh, loved ones that, that were lost in that plane. Those planes are going to the West Coast and the East Coast. They were fully loaded with jet fuel. Um, you know, you got you got a lot of things coming together here that just make a lot of sense. I just wonder, I don't want to get bogged down in this too much, but I just wonder if those jet the jet the jet fuel could maintain itself so long to make those buildings collapse well the fire lasted a long time in the pentagon and that was one you know that was one plane and when it's confined in a small space like that it's going to burn very hot and um, so i i i guess i don't have a problem with that i i think with 9 11 i think that there's so much uh, uncertainty about it that people are going to be debating this for years. Well, let's put it this way: you know, do I trust George Bush? Do I trust Dick <laughs> Cheney? Do I trust that that regime? I don't think you do. No. I, I can't tell you the level of distrust and disdain I have for Dick Cheney. Yeah. I mean, here you have uh, uh, you know an administration that starts a war. Uh, destroys a country and then takes their own private companies to rebuild it. Yeah, I mean, they should be brought up on war crimes, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, assuming the information that I've seen is correct, right. but 
Um, I, I, I mean, to me, I, it's just, it's amazing. <laughs> it's just amazing. Well, Scott, you've been an excellent guest. We've enjoyed having you on. Uh, please tell everybody where they can get in touch with you and also what's next for you. What's down the pike? Is well, America on um, Earth coming back? Well, I, I don't know. Um, and to be honest with you right now, it's a very turbulent and uncertain time in um, the cable industry. I mean, cable ratings are down like last I heard last year, 40%. And unless you're you know, the walking it, dead. Well, yeah, in, in some ways that's uh, true. And H2, which is, was our channel that America on earth aired on right. is going away at the end of the year. They sold it to vice. So, um, what what's going to happen? I don't know. I mean, they, you know, history channel suddenly had two channels. Now they just have one and they uh, have to decide what, what they're going to do. And I think they want, they need to decide what they're going to be. It's a very, very difficult time, not just for them, but many of these networks, they trying to figure out how do we make money? What kind of programming do we want to have? What's going to get good ratings? I mean, it's a tough business, especially in this climate today. Now the silver lining is there's more, uh, the demand for content is greater than it's ever been. The only thing is, is how is it going to be delivered? You know, on demand television, is what people want. And yeah. quite frankly, they should have it. You know, I mean, yeah. the young kids, they want to binge and watch TV when they want, and they want to watch a bunch of episodes in a row and binge watch. I like to do that too. I, I get on a roll watching old Star Trek, and I watch three or four at <laughs> a time. Why not? I mean, when so, I watched, when I watched Pirate Treasure of the Caribbean, you know, of the Caribbean, there I did it again. Pirate, <laughs> Treasure the the, thing, right? Pirate Treasure of the Night Simpler. That's what I did. You know, I watched yeah, exactly. it on demand. Yeah. Well, I, well, once you get going on a story, well, what's next? You know, and right. so, so, you know, that's, that's changing the industry and, uh, we'll see what happens, but I, I'm optimistic and I can tell you that we have, a ton of stuff that we would uh, love to bring to television. I think we're going to get that opportunity. We're working on it right now, and uh, we'll see what happens. Um, um, I, I, there are a couple things that are in the works. I just can't say anything right now, but I can tell you that I think people are really going to like them. Excellent. Are you planning to like writing a book or anything? Time? Well, I've written nine books already, <laughs> um, oh. and uh, I have I just published a, a pretty important paper on my blog site about a new discovery in Jerusalem, and uh, I, I encourage people to go to my blog. I encourage them to write to me with questions, comments, criticisms, whatever they want. I will respond to everybody, and uh, if you're interested in seeing some of my books, go to my my website. Uh, www.hookdex.com and in the interest of full disclosure if you want to buy my books you can get them cheaper on Amazon uh, save a few bucks but if you want me to sign them go to my website <laughs> absolutely and I'll have a link to that and to your blog as well well Scott thank you so much for coming on we're going to close out this segment guys is there anything else you wanted to add or I just thank you yeah That's... absolutely all right, right, guys. I hope I wasn't too, <laughs> oh, too no. verbose here. That was great. That was really good. We we really <laughs> enjoyed it. It's good to talk, to kind of jump around and talk about different topics. Yeah, always. yeah, I love it. Well, that was perfect for my ADD brain. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say the line for us. We're going to close out this segment, and guys, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. Yeah, so we're over here talking about Auschwitz crossbones and <laughs> and cold insemination videos and. <laughs> 
all this good stuff. So just you guys, uh, you listeners, just chime right in, just join right in this outro. <laughs> Let us know what you think. <laughs> I, so, sometimes I can't words. I, okay, it's all the time. I, I can't words Some, all the sometimes, time. Sometimes, right? <laughs> you are so eloquent. <laughs> well, guys, that was that was quite an interview, man. We, we, we covered a lot of stuff in there. Like we covered the Knights Templar, we covered pirates, we covered uh, the Indians, we covered genetic bloodlines and right dude georgia guidestone yeah. he gave he gave me 9 11 he, he got me a little excited with some of those those themes yeah well, i mean what were your thoughts on some of that stuff man man i, I you uh, just kind of were like taking it in you know and yeah. by the way we we did tell everybody that you're actually here you, you walked in later so <laughs> <laughs> no i mean I, I was pretty i was pretty mind blown by i mean i i, did, I didn't read the mind blown bro. mind blown bro I mean, I, I didn't read that report. I've never heard anything about that report he's talking about where uh, it, apparently the, the earth needs to be at a billion people to keep like harmonious. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's, what's the word for it that was on biodome? Homeostasis. Homeostasis. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you would love a movie like Biodome. I love Biodome, dude. dude. I've seen it like 10 times. You're, you're really into Polly Shore. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, who isn't? But, but that, yeah, like that blew my mind right there. Like 1 billion, like that's so far off than what we have now. Well, that's and, incredibly far off. The Kensington Stone, like I knew a little bit about it, but I, I didn't, like, he, he, it's really convincing from what he says um, to be a hoax. You know, I, I used to think a possibility, you know, that it was a true, a true artifact or whatever, and and uh, you know, I'm I'm convinced now that it's it's a hoax too. I mean, that's, no, no, he was saying it wasn't. A oh, hoax, it was not a hoax. No, it's not a hoax. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, he, like proved, he, he, yeah. he he essentially proved that it that from his expertise as a forensic geologist that he was looking at when it would like he figured that when it was carved was around the 1300s. Oh. Oh, I, I took that wrong. Instead then. of being because the story behind the Kensington Rudestone is is that there was a guy that found it on his property in Minnesota. Yeah. And the reason one of the reasons why it's been doubted so much was they say, well, maybe this guy carved it himself in the 19th century. Right, I just saw that. Wikipedia. Buried it. Yeah. And then a few months later, uh, exhumed it. And the reason a lot of people think that and why I, w- why I was saying that there was some credence to the fact that it could be a hoax was that there's so many people in in um, Minnesota that are of Scandinavian descent, like Swedish and Norwegian descent, and that the possibility that they could have said, well, you know, look, you know, Swedes or Norwegians were here. The Vikings were here long before anybody else. So that gives us kind of like credence or like this form of pride. Oh. So that's why it was always kind of doubted that it was a real thing. But he's looked at it and, and others, I think, have looked at it, too. And it's it's it is still technically it is debatable. But it's like like I said, it's not too far to think that the Vikings would have kind of moved inland themselves. But he's actually saying that it was actually later than the Vikings and that there might be some kind of Templar relationship there. Oh, okay. I, I missed some of that. Yeah. See? Well, um, that's what happens when you fall asleep. In the middle. I wasn't sleeping. <laughs> I definitely wasn't sleeping this episode. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, but we weren't uh, talking about we weren't talking about the Bible or anything like that. So. <laughs> yeah, that's the quickest yeah. way right there. <laughs> it's like you want to make Luke go fall asleep, talk about the Bible. Well, <laughs> how, how long is the English Channel, dude? The English Channel? Yeah, isn't that the shortest distance between um, New England and U- the well, UK? the English Channel is between France and England. Oh, <laughs> what's, what, well, what's the okay? What's the span across the 
It's probably ocean, what, man. like maybe like two thousand, two thousand to three thousand miles. I'm not quite sure. Channel. But there, but <laughs> there, three days yeah. by ship. The, the the English Channel is what splits uh, mainland Europe from Great Britain. Gotcha. You take, okay. you take ferries to get across. Yeah. All right. Okay. Now they've got the tunnel, which is on the shortest point between okay. Calais and Dover. But really, the way they think that the Vikings got here was that they just island hopped because you would you would they, go for you would go Greenland. from they would go from Scandinavia to Great Britain to Ireland yeah. and they go to Iceland then hop over to Greenland then hop over to uh, to what's now Newfoundland and then you're right there on like the North American mainland right okay so for me it's not too to think that they could probably travel down the St. Lawrence River in Canada and eventually enter into the Great Lakes and they would find their way to someplace like Minnesota oh sweet so that's entirely it, possible. I yeah, believe. It's, it's definitely navigable. Like by the kind of absolutely. Uh, another thing that you're uh, from Michigan, you should know. Oh yeah, I, mean, I know all about the Great Lakes. It, yeah. Another thing that kind of had me raising some brows was the raising was, some brows bro. was a was a Jesus's bu- uh, bloodline. Like yeah, yeah, the whole ossuary thing. I'd never heard of that. That was great. yeah, right. ossuary, not mm. Auschwitz. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I know that. I know that some people say you know that that's debatable too. Uh, the whole Jesus bloodline thing is just that is you get into that and it's like this whole like quagmire of different stuff. <laughs> and we talked a little bit about that with uh, I don't know if you remember Rob. You were there for that show with Tracy Twyman mm-hmm. uh, about Baphomet and the Knights Templar and her experiences and like all that that's like the priory of scion and all that stuff yeah i remember that episode yeah i mean is it possible well i mean as a as a christian you know i'm kind of led to believe that you know you get so many theological debates on that one so many things like whether jesus was married or all all this kind of stuff I mean, the Bible doesn't outright say one way or the other. It doesn't. Does it? it doesn't. It doesn't say. One, so, so uh, how one are how the are there seven some different? Of the, some of, some stuff is from later, later, later tradition than it is in the what state. Uh, how the how are there seven different accounts of him being crucified? But there's not more details about his actual life going on. Well, well I don't know. There's seven different accounts the, of him being crucified to the agenda of the of the time. At least my opinion, like. Yeah. His home life and his family life is like, well, that's, you know, Jesus when he's you, off duty. Like, well, you know, I remember having a conversation with somebody um, back when the Da Vinci Code came out. And that's when it really kind of came into like the whole consciousness. I remember reading Holy Blood, Holy Grail back in the 90s when I was in high school. And that book came out in 1982. And that was kind of what was, you know, that was kind of one of the first to kind of posit this idea that. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had children together and that eventually they ended up in the South of France. And through that, they came into this, uh, they became mixed with this line of French Kings called the Merovingians and that there's like the bloodline just kind of bifurcated throughout everybody. And that's where Scott Walter's coming from, you know, saying that the Knights Templar were all part of this bloodline, that they all had this link there. Um, you know, I remember talking to somebody about that, and this guy was, he was Church of Christ, which is kind of a fairly mainline Protestant denomination. And he actually himself, he didn't have a problem with this concept of Jesus being married. Um, you know, definitely, you know, that's 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 the question there. 
what you what you want to what you're willing to accept. Um, you know, I I don't think marriage exactly is like a sin, okay? Or it's considered if you having sex in marriage, that's not considered sinful, right? But then you can look at it as the idea of original sin in in, the, in Catholicism. You can look at it that way too. So I think it's how how theologically you look at it. Well, the the way the way I, I see it, there's I and as usual, I don't have any references or any like specific examples for this. But I, I've I've heard several times that there was there were there were times throughout the history of the Bible where it was edited to make Jesus seem less human and more godly for specific agendas, and and part of that would be you know editing out these portions where, you know, he had a home life or he had yeah. a marriage or he had children or he had all of that kind of stuff. Well, well, let's, let's put it, let's, let's look at it this and way. And again, you know way more about it than I do, but some of the stuff that we're looking at, um, early, the earliest translations that they have that even go, I think be, uh, are manuscripts that they have before even like Constantine, the, the emperor Constantine who made, Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. That's maybe where you might get that editing going. But even the manuscripts before are pretty consistent to what we have now. In fact, when we look at the Gospels or the translations that we have, you know, Doc Marquis' love for the King James Version notwithstanding, <laughs> you know, a lot of that's a lot of that's translated from the original Greek rather than the than the Latin like Vulgate. Right. Okay. So a lot of that stuff's not really in there. A lot of it's not, it's really been proven that a lot of it has not been tampered with. Um, and a lot of these gospels that pur purport to be uh, like the Gnostic gospels, uh, the Nag Hammadi library that was found in 1945. That was the Gnostic. Luke is like totally shaking his head at me. <laughs> what? That was, that was, that was, a lot of those gospels that are supposedly these extra gospels, a lot of that stuff was written in the second or the third century, 200, maybe even 300 years after Jesus even right. was alive. And it was part of a, of a, of a sect that was considered heretical, which was Gnosticism. And we talked a little bit about that because Gnosticism, I think eventually you get groups like the Knights Templar, the Freemasons, that's, that's Western esoteric occultism. Okay, the, what, right. the, the root of that is in Gnosticism. So a lot of that is, uh, is, much, er, is much later. The Gospels and even like the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, they would say that, well, you know, Jesus was born or Jesus was killed in the 30s AD. Well, the, the first Gospel of Mark wasn't, wasn't uh, written until... 70 AD, basically. Okay. Well, there's 35 to 40 years between them. There's still people alive that would have known Jesus. They would have known what happened. Right. They would have been able to, to see him. You know, Peter would have been either have just died or would have still been around or, or would have still been around at that point. John, we know, was still around because he was alive until the 90s AD. So... There's a lot more, I think, credence to what we actually have in the actual Gospels themselves than than a lot of these other <laughs> books like 
the acts of, or like the gospel of Thomas or, uh, the gospel of Judas. They, those are things from 200, maybe even 300 okay, years my, later. I guess, I guess my whole point is that the, none of them ever kind of focus on Jesus's kind of home life or attitude right. or, you know, and, and who it, he it, was as a person outside of who he was as a teacher. And it could have been completely unimportant. That's what I'm saying. Like, to, to, to those to, to, yeah. to those guys. It could have been completely unimportant. Like, well, of course he was with Mary. Everybody knows that. I, I'm not going to write I, that down. I mean, there's there's a possibility that, like, you know, that you know he was referred to as rabbi. Okay? And for someone yeah, that was that a rabbi <laughs> in the first century A.D., piss the people off. they would have had... Uh, they they would have been expected to be married, and there's some people that look at the marriage at Cana in the in the in the Bible and say that that was actually Jesus's marriage, you know. But I also you know you can look at it another way, and even Scott brought this up. You could look at it as well. What if Mary Magdalene wasn't Jesus's wife? What if she was his sister? What if she was a cousin? We don't really know. And, 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 and also Mary and Joseph, they had other children after Jesus. Right. They looked at James, the James, there was John, Jude, whatever, you know, all these other guys, and they could have had descendants. And even um, one of the early church historians, I think it's uh, Eusebius, even he mentions them in one of his historical writings as being there. So if those people actually... Uh, were were part of that they could they would have been descendants of David, and they could have intermingled into right. French royalty, British royalty, all that stuff. Uh, all right, let's let's switch gears here. <laughs> well, so, sorry, Rob. It's Rob's fault. He got me. Out. <laughs> so, sitting here talking about throwing out names like Euclidius and the Library of Megalia and what, whatever, dude. Right? We, we need all, to do some fake history sometime with Luke. We, we, we all know you're brilliant, okay? Let's move on. No, what what is this you're talking about? The Excalibur in California? Yeah. That was, well, that was a show that you missed, and the, the, all right, well, just that, tell me off air then. That was Walter Bosley. Uh, we talked to him about uh, when the Secret Missions book was the second time we had him on. Uh, we were, he was talking about, uh, Juan Cabrillo, which was a Spanish conquistador. And so, um, he believes that he was also associated with this Templar order of Christ that, well, the order, the, the in Portugal, they, they survived on, uh, cause the King of Portugal needed them to fight the, the Muslims in Spain. And so he, well, he believes that there is like this sword that was kind of analogous to that was Excalibur that was also Joan of Arc's sword, and that it was possible it's possibly was stashed somewhere in California. Sort of a spirit destiny type of yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, very much like that, very Whoa. much like that. Yeah, that's rad. And also that this Excalibur sword was made out of Orme. What? Yeah. I'm gonna have to listen to that show, dude. That's that's Walter Bosley's <laughs> idea. Whoa, Joe, I've done enough talking. <laughs> you had something to share from our experiments from earlier. Um, yeah, I sent you guys a text. Um, it's on my Instagram. We asked for um, 
grandma spirit to show. And I think we got it uh, from one of the frames of video we did the light and motion on. It's pretty interesting. I don't know if you guys could see it. You said you could see it, but I don't know if people are telling me the truth or not. Well, no, but no. I know I definitely see it. I, There's a lady there. I saw. I saw what you were seeing. I just I didn't see it, my grandma. Well, you said we, we just asked for a grandma. Like, yeah. My grandma never had a walker, but this is definitely a person with a walker. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. interesting? Yeah. This is on a black surface. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. like like we, you could see like close to where Rob's hand was that there was like a you could we could see a figure with like a walker which which was weird and, and 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 sometimes with this stuff joe you'll i'll be honest you show me it and i'm like i don't see it or i see something else yeah but this time i saw that right away yeah and it's if you guys if people who use the app are are busy and thinking about something else they're really not going to see it but you just you got to be in the mood just relax and then just use it. Don't use it if you're in a hurry. It's just not going to make sense to you. But just uh, it, it's all science and math. There's no graphics involved. It's just doing the calculations on the pixels that are in front of the camera. Right. right. Like, like you were saying earlier, you can download the free app and you can be part of this new research and just check it out for yourself. Yep. Who was it you asked for again? Asked for Winston Churchill. Oh, Winston Churchill. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I looked him up because I had to see. What he, he looks like Dick Cheney. <laughs> Yeah. Dick Cheney would probably like that. I, I couldn't that. even tell you what he did. Man. I have no clue. He's in charge. Well, who was, England, who was right? Winston Churchill? Just make it up, man. Uh, all right. Here's what I've gathered. Okay. He's, he's from the First World War. Oh, you're kind of close. Yes. Oh, really? And he, he was a, he was a commander, general, whatever. And uh, he he won a battle. He won he won a battle. For America. <laughs> yes, he was very American. Uh, yeah, he was half American. He's from the South. <laughs> no. No? Okay. What was his effect on the French Revolution? He, um... In <laughs> <laughs> the Ukrainian War of Independence. And <laughs> the third partition of Poland. Man, you know what? He, j he just laid down a speech. He, he just... <laughs> He laid he laid down one hell of a speech. That's usually what they and, do. And the, and the, even the like the French the French were hard to come around, but they they eventually did. They saw things the American way because <laughs> because because Winston Winston just laid down the law, dude. Oh, we, we should have a new segment where Luke and I discuss history because neither one of us knows anything about Luke, Luke history. Everybody, there you go. Wasn't, wasn't he the guy carrying the big stick? Uh, that, <laughs> no, was that was Theodore Roosevelt. Walk, walk silent. <laughs> we did None of us know. Who? <laughs> <Except for> Adam. <laughs> Speak softly, but carry a big yeah. stick. Just remember Eusebius, okay, guys? Yeah. <laughs> he won such a good battle that the Ukrainians got kind of scared, and they were like, man, we don't want to mess with America now. And the, so. and the Mongols, they were involved somehow, too. <laughs> they were? Yeah. Invading Mongolian tribes were trying to come into Ukraine. There you and, go. and Winston it. used some of his men. He's like, okay, you're on our side yeah, now. So we threw some Americans over there in Ukraine, <laughs> and we helped the invading Mongols stay out of China. <laughs> Rob, this is almost turning into the leisure hour over here. Plug that. Plug that real quick. Oh, yeah. For, uh, so for those of you who don't know, I, I've been producing another show called The Leisure Hour that you can find at ourleisure.com. 
Uh, it's completely ridiculous and absurd. There's, you're not going to learn anything there, but you'll laugh. So It's kind of like if you had Luke all the time. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like three, <laughs> like two Lukes together three in one four room. four Lukes in a room. And yeah. some pot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, coming up in a few days, uh, we're, it's the day of the night. It's October 14th that we're recording this. October 18th, uh, which is this coming Sunday, we have Dr. David Jacobs returning, and we're going to talk about his new book, Walking Among Us. Uh, we talked to him last year back in November about uh, alien-human hybrids and the hybridization program from like his previous book that was released in 1998 called The Threat, where we're going to talk about how a new group of human of alien human hybrids that he calls hubrids are now being integrated into society. And this is some interesting and scary stuff. And I think it'll be kind of appropriate for Halloween next week. Uh, next Sunday, we have Steve Stockton coming on. We're going to talk about some scary stories. And Steve is originally from Tennessee and we're just going to get like some of his stories that he's, that he's collected from his books. Uh, Joe, thank you for being here tonight. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. And we're going to put Joe's stuff up on the, we'll put Joe's stuff up on the show notes. And uh, guys, thank you for listening to Conspiranormal. Conspiranormal. <laughs> oh, dude, I've been holding that in for a while. Do what you want because a pirate is free. You are a pirate. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.